you had the idea for this character many, many years Long ago. Long time ago, yeah, about 12 years ago. Okay, so now you've lived with him all this time and yeah. kicked him around in your head and everything. Then when you see him on screen, is it the way you envisioned it's, oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, and, and, and much better. I mean, we, we, we had such a wonderful cast in this thing. Danny Aiello, Andy McDowell, James Coburn, Sandra Bernhardt in probably the best work she's ever done. Uh, um, uh, Richard E. Grant. Everybody showed up with, with something to add to the story and add to the script. It just made it even funnier. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. Uh, Brad, let's just skip all of the formalities. We've got a big episode Yeah, tonight. I've already seen you like the last few days, so I'm tired of seeing you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, episode 146, my pick this week. We're going to talk about 1991's Hudson Hawk. And man, for me, this is, this is a pretty big film, early 90s. We seem to have been talking about a lot of movies from early 90s. But this is one film that as soon as we kind of put it on the schedule, we had two people who were like, hey, I, we got to be on that one, too. And guess who came to join the conversation? Brad, you want to do the uh, introductions there? Yeah. So we have Jose from Watch Skip Plus. Howdy, Jose. Howdy. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me back. Of course. Always. And the man who was going to make his triumphant return to podcasting very soon, but seems to still do our podcast on a <laughs> weekly basis. It's Sammy from the GGTMC. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to be back. I feel like, again, I feel like uh, I've never left podcasting. I just keep coming back to the show and not doing my own, but that's okay. That's okay. It, well, you I'm, guys I'm, record I'm hopping back on the horse. Yeah. You and will recorded some odd hours that Brad and I, we've, we've been wanting to get will on the show, but the schedules just have not aligned. Cause, um, He's yeah. he's very much got a Canadian schedule which we do not adhere to. <laughs> <laughs> and to be very fair, Sammy's got to do a lot more heavy lifting for his own podcast than ours. I hope. I hope he doesn't have to do a whole lot of heavy lifting for us. So that's yeah, why it's I easy do, for him to yeah. jump on here. Yeah, and then of course the schedule, right? I mean, I can jump in and out. Yeah, even though it seems like I'm in a lot on the show, uh, I can jump in and out. Whereas on my show, once once I commit, I'm all in. So I have to make sure I. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. It's good to be back. No, it's awesome. Well, look, I couldn't pick a better group of guys to sit down and talk about Hudson Hawk with. So I'm, I'm really anxious to get into really sharing our thoughts and even talking about some of the people behind the camera and in front of the camera. So, Brad, let's kick it off with you and go right into the details of what happened when Hudson Hawk graced the big screen back in 1991. Yeah, so released May 24th, 1991, with a reported budget of $65 million. Ooh. Hudson Hopps' total box office run, $17 million domestically and $80 million internationally. So it makes roughly $97 million. Troy, the studio has said they wrote off $90 million for this movie. Yes. So I think the marketing advertising was like 2.5 times. We usually say two times, but for that amount of money, they wrote off 
they they lost quite a bit. That so, that will make sense though when Jose talks about the people behind the camera. So this was a bit of a high profile film when it came out, and and when we talk about the people involved and what they were doing around this time, that will make total sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, there's few actors who were bigger than Bruce Willis at this time, but anyway. Um, opening weekend, Hudson Hawk makes seven million dollars. It's good enough for third place. Listen to some of these films that you could have seen mm-hmm. that weekend. You got Backdraft. What about Ooh. Bob? Hudson Hawk, Thelma and Louise, Only the Lonely, Drop Dead Fred, which we are doing in a few weeks, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, um, and a film I know Jose's probably seen so many times, Madonna, Truth or Dare. Oh, yeah. I think I I I saw all those films. I was working in the movie theater, uh, got back from college for that year and that summer back into the movie theater. And I remember seeing Hudson Hawk a few times, to be quite honest, out of all those. Wow. I okay. saw Drop Dead Fred twice. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've never seen Drop Dead Fred. Uh, well, uh, we're doing fantastic. it in a few weeks. So if you want to <laughs> yeah, play along. I'm here all the time anyway. So why not? <laughs> uh, critically, Hudson Hawk sits at a 31% on Rock Tomatoes and a 56 with the audience. That's with over 25,000 reviews from the audience. Wow. Oh, boys. Guess what we have this week? Oh, did our movieguide.org. Oh, boy. I can't even imagine what they thought of this one. So movieguide.org, for people who don't know, is a website that reviews films, not for their quality, but for their content. And they have a problem with Mr. Hudson Hawk. Oh, yeah. Anyone want to guess what this comes in at? Oh, the scale is plus four to minus four. Plus four being the most holy, minus four being the most... Uh, cat burglary, you can be, yeah. Minus I'm, three. I'm gonna go negative, yeah. I might negative. minus three is a good safe bet. I'm gonna go minus four just for crazy chaotic I, reasons. I'm going, look, Hudson converts a nun and not in a good way, to according to the Roman Catholic yeah. Church. So, I'm gonna go negative four on this. It is a negative yeah. four, yeah. Oh my god, yeah. we're going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, very yogi. <laughs> very, uh, <laughs> damn it. very short um, content warning here. Roughly of hundred obscenities and profanities, yep. senseless murder and violence, repeated sexual innuendo, and mocking Christianity. Well, speci- mocking Catholicism, not Christianity. Let's let's be clear. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah. So the Christians had a problem with Hudson Hawk um, <laughs> films you could have seen in May of 1991 are as follows. We have a rage in Harlem, one good Ooh. cop FX two Madonna truth or dare switch. What about Bob backdraft? Um, only the lonely film and Louise, a, a movie that we've done before stone cold yes. might be the greatest movie Ooh. ever made. Um, yeah. And soap Arguably. dish. Oh yeah. All simple, re- stone yeah, all what relatively interesting films. That's the John Candy film. John Candy. John Candy. Yes, and yeah. Maureen O'Hara. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yep. Got it. I think it was, was it directed by John Hughes or was it written by him? Uh, that I, is a. I think written. Yeah, I don't know if he directed. That's, I knew it was like that's a, a Chris production. Columbus film, isn't it? Is that a Chris yeah, Columbus? Yeah, it might be a Chris. Yeah, it might be a Chris it Columbus. It is Chris. I feel, like, I feel like Hughes is tied to it somehow, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I'm sure he is. It, it, 
I remember liking it. I mean, uh, it's a sweet little comedy. Is Macaulay Culkin is, in that movie? Sweet. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yes. That would be Uncle Buck. Uh, no, he yes, is in it. He's listed here. Macaulay oh, and, he? Car- and Karen. Uh, yeah. yeah, Billy, right? Was one of them Billy? Why do yeah. I know this? I wonder, okay. what Uncle Buck's, I wonder what Uncle Buck's porn movie name is. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> Uncle Buck. Never mind, never mind. <laughs> yeah, probably around there. Hughes well, was a producer. His name is Buck, <laughs> and he likes to. More on that later. Thank you. Okay. Babysit. So, yep. Jose, uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait to hear where you go with the with the behind the camera stuff on this one, because there are a lot of interesting people associated with this film. And I'm sure you're going to touch on some of the things that I think I wrote down in production and development, but I'm going to hand it over to you. And uh, let's let's talk about the people that were behind the camera or responsible for the birth of Hudson Hawk. The birth. <laughs> they pushed this one out, y'all. Yeah, they did. Uh, so um, <laughs> uh, on on my own show, I've been trying to truncate this because I just feel like it becomes white noise. <laughs> so I may leave some things out, but hopefully not. Um, okay, our director is one Michael Lehman, who for me is a cinematic god, if only because he directed 1988's Heathers, Classic. which I think I watched every day in high school until i graduated in 19 i I, I too loved that movie yes um he directed a much better film six years later uh so he has other other memorable 90s flicks including airheads i can't believe you said airheads was better than heathers oh it is 100 percent. i'm not lying i love airheads okay i mean I, i like i like airheads but i don't love airheads it stars the now Oscar-winning Brendan Fraser, Adam Sandler, and yeah. Steve Buscemi. 1996's The Truth About Cats and Dogs. Um, both of All of these movies, by the way, staples of HBO, which mm-hmm. is why I got to see them over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Um, and that one, Truth About Cats and Dogs, starred Uma Thurman, Janine Garofalo, and Ben Chaplin. After 2002's 40 Days and 40 Nights with Josh Hartnett, Lehman seemed to go the way of directing TV series and movies, most notably episodes on Brian Fuller's uh, Wonderfalls and The Comeback, which is one of my favorite HBO shows ever. He returned Mm -hmm. in 2007 with Because I Said So, uh, starring Diane Keaton, and then eventually ended up back in television directing episodes for big shows like Dexter, Nurse Jackie, American Horror Story, Snowfall, 68 Whiskey, and then the recent Netflix parody suspense thriller, the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. Um, <laughs> I love that. Time. He's only written one feature, although he's directed a lot. He's only written one feature, and that was his follow-up to Heather's, which was actually filmed in 1988, but not released because until 1990s because of problems with New World and its distribution. And that film is called Meet the Applegates, which is about yeah. a race of human-like praying mantises that move into a suburban neighborhood to gain access to nuclear resources. It is as a follow-up to Heather's. It was underwhelming, but it has cult value. Most definitely. Yeah. Most. Definitely. Oh yeah. Ed Bagley jr. Film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It indeed it is. Uh, so there's a story by credit by Bruce Willis and Robert Kraft. So obviously we know who Bruce Willis is. Apparently he conceived this character of Hudson Hawk, Uh, During his moonlighting days, Robert Kraft is an award-winning songwriter, film composer, record producer, and recording artist. Uh, He is the former president of Fox Music from 1994 to 2002. 
He has worked as the executive in charge of music for a bazillion films, um, including the Oscar-nominated music for The Mambo Kings, Anna and the King. He co-produced all of the Little Mermaid songs, and Kraft would go on to actually executive produce and produce some of the songs that are featured in this movie with Michael Kamen, who did the score in this film. Um, so they he have also, a story by credit. Yeah, he also invented yeah, mac and cheese. Oh, yes, he did invent mac and cheese. Um, can, <laughs> yes. I, can I jump in here, Jose? This is super interesting. I did it. not know any of this until watching a fantastic interview and discussion between Robert Kraft and Bruce Willis on the Kino Lorber Blu-ray. So yeah. Kino did this film justice, and they put a nice edition out with some really great interviews. But Beautiful. here's how the story goes, and I didn't know this. So Robert Kraft had become friends with Bruce Willis uh, back in New York. So they were both aspiring artists, and uh, Kraft would frequent the bar that Bruce Willis worked at. So Bruce Willis wanted to be an actor. Kraft wanted to be this, like, singer, songwriter, megastar. And um, it was Kraft who helped Willis put together the music for the theme tune, which is called Hudson Hawk Theme. So what had happened is Kraft was walking down New York and this blast of wind hit him and he started to kind of get this theme song in his head, goes back to Bruce Willis and he kind of talks about this and then just their friendship and getting drunk and stuff like that because they have some great stories. <laughs> um, over time, they kind of tweaked this song and the title character... Uh, and it became a song about a super sleuth who could crack any safe in the world. And um, this wisecracking cat burglar with a New Jersey accent um, eventually became the character that was created out of the song. And way back when, you know, Willis is working in a bar, Kraft is coming through um, and playing in these cafes and clubs. You know, Bruce Willis says, hey, this this is going to be this. I'm going to make this movie. And um, it really started out of this friendship and out of this tune that they worked on together. And we'll talk a little bit more about Bruce Willis and his career. But I think that's super fascinating that here's two guys that were, you know, really in the same place and just happen upon each other in, you know, the streets of New York City. And, and they're both just really trying to make it. But their friendship has lasted. And um, they still talk and collaborate even to today. But if you look at titans of industry in terms of the music business and even in the film industry, I mean, these two guys are it in their, in their, you know, respective, um, skill sets. So it's crazy. That story's fantastic. And they have a interview that they did. I, I want to say it was in 2000. It wasn't too recent. Um, but it, it has them talking about the inception of it and them sitting at the piano singing and just kind of goofing around uh, and you can you can see how long that friendship's been. It's really cool. And I believe he helped him with his. Uh, so Bruce Willis actually had a, uh, you know, he put out like a, a pop album, Return of Bruno. And I think that Kraft helped out, helped out with that. And obviously, subsequently, some of his other music projects. Oh, yeah. Um, and that song was redone by Dr. John for the yes. soundtrack, which There's... is now out of print. Well, they <laughs> you can if you get the if you get the Kino Blu-ray you will see the music video that they shot for that, which was directed by Antoine Fuqua, who Bruce Willis would go on to work with him on Tears of the Sun. Yeah. A great effing movie. <laughs> that is a good, that's, that, that's an underrated one, that one, yeah. Yep. Tears of the Sun is probably Fuqua's best. Fuqua's best. Um, so our screenplay is by two very notable names. We have Stephen E. D'Souza, 
who we have talked about before because we did uh, Street Fighter, yes, which he wrote and directed. But S- D'Souza is a writer, director, producer, pretty much crafted the cinematic language for action films and TV series in the 80s and the 90s. He wrote for Bionic Woman, Six Million Dollar Man, and helped develop and produced and wrote for series like Knight Rider, The Powers of Matthew Starr, and Super Carrier. His screenwriting credits include 48 Hours, Commando, The Running Man, Willis Willis's movie uh, Die Hard, Beverly Hills Cop 3, Ricochet, Judge Dredd, Knock Off, and story credit on the uh, Angelina Jolie to- Tomb Raider sequel. Uh, D'Souza actually fashioned this as sort of like a straight action. And so Lehman brought in Daniel Waters to punch it up. Daniel Waters is a script doctor, but he also wrote Heathers. I love this man. Sure, D'Souza gets that that sort of like street cred for the action, but Waters has written the following films. Heathers, Adventures of Ford Fairlane, Batman, <laughs> Batman Returns, Demolition Man, and then Vampire Academy in 2014. His brother, by the way, is Mark Waters, the director of House of Yes, Freaky Friday, The Lowen and Curtis, Freaky Friday, Mean Girls, Spiderwick Chronicles, and Bad Santa 2. Um, nice. but I, but those movies, Heather's Ford Fairlane, Batman returns, demolition man, they were just rotating into in and out of my VHS player. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah that was a, that, that was a good time. That was a good time. Absolutely. Yeah, most definitely. Um, our music obviously by Robert Kraft, as I mentioned, Michael Kamen Kamen has 97 composing credits on his, on movies as varied as the dead zone, Mona Lisa adventures in babysitting license to kill Robin hood, Prince of thieves. And he frequently collaborates with the super producer who I'm about to get to, and that is Joel Silver. Uh, Speaking of crafting cinematic language for action, arguably he and Jerry Bruckheimer single-handedly reinvented action or even just sort of brought to, to pop culture fame like the notion of a super producer or a producer that produces films that you know, hit the pop culture zeitgeist and then stay there in your, in their minds. So Joel Silver, interestingly enough, he's a graduate of New York, uh, NYU film school, and he worked for Lawrence Gordon pictures. And his first on-screen credit is as an associate producer for the warriors. Mm -hmm. He would go on to also help to associate produce films like Xanadu, (laughs) which is weird when you look at the rest of Joel Silver's uh, resume that Xanadu is on there is even stranger. But he ended up working for uh, for Lawrence Gordon Pictures, and they were able to produce films like 48 Hours, Streets of Fire, uh, Brewster's Brewster's Millions, and even um, Weird Science, which is sort of like an odd one to also have on Joel Silver's uh, resume. Eventually, in 83, he formed his own uh, production company, initially set up at Universal Pictures. Um, and a- again, he was doing some comedies, but eventually he ended up at um, Fox. And he ended up producing some of the most memorable action films. We have, uh, I'm just going to run down this list here. It's a huge list. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, he's pretty much responsible for my childhood. So, uh, yeah, for most of us, right. Yep. GGTMC, all of us. Uh, so he was producer on commando jumping Jack flash, which by the way, introduced the world to Whoopi Goldberg, uh, lethal weapon predator 
Action Jackson, Amazing. Die Hard, yes. Roadhouse, Die Hard 2, The Adventures of Fort Fairlane, um, Lethal Weapon 2, Predator 2. He does Hudson Hawk, also produces the Bruce Willis starring uh, The Last Boy Scout, other Lethal Weapon movies, Demolition Man. Um, eventually, he ends up um, at WB or Warner Brothers, uh, again, producing you know the Lethal Weapons, all of that um assassins fair game executive decision with kurt russell and steven seagal um and most notably the matrix series which he you know just sort of foisted onto the world and it was a huge sensation arguably silver has also been the person who introduced mainstream us to jet lee mm-hmm. uh with lethal weapon four and then he made romeo must die as well as uh what was it? Uh, Cradle, Cradle to the to Grave, the grave. Yeah. Um, with Jet Li, but combining him also with hip hop, which, you know, I think is sort of like, in a way, if you think about Wu-Tang and Shaw and then like, you know, DMX and then, you know, Jet Li and stuff like that, um, it, it was like a perfect mix. Um, he even gave a little defibrillator to Steven Seagal's career with Exit Wounds. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And also giving him that great, like, psycho-esque role in um, Executive Decision. <laughs> yes. Not to spoil it. Um, he also helped to co-found a company called uh, Dark Castle Entertainment. And so uh, there were, there were like, films that came out, like 13 Ghosts, um, House on Haunted Hill, that he, Ghost Ship, that he was sort of bringing out that were in the horror genre. Um, also had a wing of uh, WB Television and helped produce the shows The Strip, Freedom and Veronica Mars. Unfortunately, he did. He burned a lot of bridges, so much so that he wasn't even allowed um, in certain studios. Uh, so, for example, his cameo in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, they had to like sneak him onto set and not tell anybody that he was there because, again, he was apparently very, very difficult to work with. He is the inspiration for the producer character that is like freakish on cocaine in true romance and some other yeah. films as well. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, that is Joel Silver, super producer. Our DP is Dante Spinati, Italian guy. Uh, he, in 1985, producer Dino De Laurentiis actually offered him a chance to work in the U S and he worked with Michael Mann on the feature Manhunter. Mm-hmm. And since then, very, very fruitful relationship with Michael Mann. He lends the last of the Mohicans heat and the insider he's also shot films like la confidential beaches frankie and johnny sam raimi's the quick and the dead and also frequently collaborates with brett ratner so a lot of ratner's films like tower heist etc um even i think uh family man were were shot by dante spinati and most recently he shot ant-man and the wasp so he joined the mcu as a cinematographer um and the thriller fatal our production designer is Jackson Degovia, who's one of my favorite production designers. From his humble beginnings on My Bodyguard and The Winds of War, he went on to do production design for great films like Space Hunter, Red Dawn, <laughs> Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. Classic. I know Brad's favorite. Um, mm-hmm. Roxanne, Die Hard, Sister Act, Speed, Volcano, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Curiously enough, the remainder of his resume is comedies. So Stepford Wives, 40-year-old virgin, forgetting Sarah Marsha, Sarah Marshall, and Drillbit Taylor. So it's very odd that he goes from these prestige films to Drillbit Taylor. <laughs> um yeah, and then Taylor I, is 
Dr- Drill Bit Taylor is written by John Hughes. <laughs> is it? it oh, is. wow. I didn't yes. know that. Oh, yeah. wow. That's crazy. I, I did not know that because that that movie is obnoxious. <laughs> um, <laughs> or or should I say Owen Wilson is obnoxious in that movie. And then yeah, I just wanted to yeah. shout out two, two people. Wow. First, costume oh, designer wow. Marilyn. Marilyn Vance wow. Straker. <laughs> oh, oh, Taylor. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> you guys are nuts. <laughs> um, <laughs> costume designer Marilyn Vance, also known as Marilyn Vance Straker. Um, she frequently collaborates with Joel Silver, so she's done costumes on a lot of action films, but she's most notable because she designed the costumes for Pretty Woman and The Rocketeer, which mm-hmm. I know is a favorite of all of ours. And the costumes here, especially and the previous ones episode, that, Mystery Men. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. Mystery Men as well. Um, and the costumes here that uh, uh, what's it was supposed to be is Isabella Rossellini, but it's actually Sandra Bernhardt. I love the dress that she appears in. She's pretty fabulous. And then the other person I wanted to shout out was Charlie Picherny, who is a stunt legend. Um, so Picherny had a brother who was on The Untouchables, uh, the 1959 television series. So eventually he got to doing stunt double work, eventually ended up doubling Paul Michael Glazer in Starsky and Hutch. And from there, he started second unit directing television shows. And listen to this list. Starsky and Hutch, Kojak, Magnum P.I., A-Team, Matt Houston, Hardcastle and McCormick, Blue Thunder, the Blue uh, Blue Thunder. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so eventually he caught the eye of Joel Silver and he became a stunt coordinator and has stunt coordinated amazing films like Die Hard, Lethal Weapon 2, Roadhouse, uh, Christmas Vacation, Demolition Man, Ghost, True Romance. The man is an absolute legend. Without him, we wouldn't even have people like Kenny Bates, who is Michael Bay's mainstay stunt coordinator. He's a legend. Charlie Petrini. He works. He worked on this film as well. Kenny Bates did. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Danny Danny O's son worked on it and Chuck Zito for the record as well. Yeah. Chuck Zito. Yes. That's right. And John Senatiempo, who's also an actor. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) And and a guy named Webster Winery. Webster Winery. (laughs) (laughs) I love that name. That's awesome, Jose. Well, it's a good name. A lot of star power and producing power behind this movie. A- absolutely. Um, and I think it's Joel Silver is the reason why when when Brad talks the budget, it it really got a lot of uh, push from the studio, specifically Joel Silver on the advertising and everything else. But really, yep. it's, a, it's a combination of Joel Silver and the first person we're going to talk to in front of the camera. And it's none other than Hudson Hawk himself, Bruce Willis. So just a real quick rundown. And then I want to get everybody's thoughts on, on Bruce. So Moonlighting hits in 85, and that's what gets sort of some notoriety and fame for him at this point, right? And you had mentioned this already, Jose. There was an HBO special that Bruce did called The Return of Bruno, and it was around 87. And his album, The Return of Bruno, got released in conjunction with that. And, and there was a couple of songs that actually made it up the, the Billboard 100. So it was pretty popular. Then, if he wasn't big enough for Moonlighting, he does this little action film called Die Hard in 1988, right? Just all of a sudden, he owns the world um, in terms of uh, action cinema. Moonlighting ends in 89, and he he stretches his acting chops a little bit in 89, does a, a film called In Country. So you got to remember, late 80s, we're, we're getting a lot of Vietnam films, right? 
or mm-hmm. Vietnam theme film. So Bruce Willis does this film. I think he's actually really good in it. Uh, in 89, he does Look Who's Talking, another big hit, right? Then Die Hard 2 comes out in 1990, same year, Look Who's Talking 2, and then one of his first box office bombs, which we will talk about at some point, The Bonfire of the Vanities. So it had a $47 million budget and it only made $15 million. So here's the first kind of film that comes along high profile and it bombs. And it had a you know pretty stacked cast and, and director behind it. But he recovers, does a little film called Mortal Thoughts in 91, actually a modest hit. Same good year. Movie, by the way. Yeah, really good film. So 91, he actually, this is what comes out in 91. Mortal Thoughts, Hudson Hawk, Billy Bathgate, in the last boy scout. So Hudson Hawk is the one that sticks out and gets all of the bad reviews. Um, we'll talk about some awards and accolades, but when you think about that, uh, Oh, go ahead. Was boy scout a bomb? No, it was It last boy scout was a bomb. I I think it was a bomb. Shane black's last boy scout. I believe (laughs) I'm looking now. Maybe yeah. not stacked up to like some of his other films, but yeah. I think it was the three million. No, wait, one hundred and fifteen. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I yeah. thought oh, it was a, maybe bombed critically. Oh, I'm sure it bombed critically because it it was. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, but no, it it did good. But let's let's talk about the '90s real quick. So he goes into the '90s with um, the Die Hard Two, Look Who's Talking, Bonfire of the Vanities. Here's some selected movies that Bruce Willis did in the '90s. Um, he plays uh, a cameo of himself in the player. You're, that that title is going to come up quite a bit when we talk about some of the people in this film. Death becomes her in '92. Pulp what? Fiction in '94. Never Tw- heard of it. What? Yeah, a little small film. Twelve Monkeys in '95. The Fifth Element in '97. Armageddon in '98. Mm-hmm. And then sort of closes out the decade with another big hit, The Sixth Sense in 1999. Oof. Yeah. I got to mention Nobody's Fool, which is some of the best acting I think he ever did. Yeah, with Paul Newman. It's fantastic. And then, uh, and even though it's trashy, I got to mention Color of Night. It's a really kind of fun rock thriller. Yeah. And and that's that's an example of the ones that I just listed were some of the the ones that, um, in terms of box office notoriety, even critically, did really well. The 90s were owned by Bruce Willis. 100% 100% now, of my opinion. I also want to add in um, one of the, I, th- I think it's like the first time I remember a celebrity really being attached to a video game was apocalypse. Bruce oh, Willis, yeah. like a starring yeah. in apocalypse on the PlayStation yeah, yeah. one. It was basically marketed as that. Um, so go back and, and look at that. I mean, it's basically a Bruce Willis action film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to start with you, Sammy. I mean, what is your take on Bruce Willis in terms of an actor, movie star, the films that he makes? I mean, is, is he one of your favorites? Is he somebody that just, okay, you, you give him kudos for what he did at a certain time period or where do you land on him? Uh, he's not one of my favorites, but I, I, I do believe for about 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, he was a true movie star uh, in that you know, he could pop up in something and he brought uh, gravitas and a lot of charisma to anything he was in. I, I, I remember thinking, I can't remember what film it was, but there was some film he did that the film wasn't good at all, but he really carried it the whole way. And uh, I, I don't know. He, he, he's always that, been that film was Armageddon. 
Yes. <laughs> hostage. It was hostage. Yeah. Hostage is not. Yeah, I, I do enjoy hostage. As a yeah. matter of fact. Um, but he, he is to me. He's like the definition of a movie star. He's not like as steady and consistent as like Tom Cruise or somebody like that. But he is a movie star, and uh, he just has a natural charisma on screen that works. Now he doesn't work for everybody. I know that. And sometimes I do think he can act. I really do. Um, but this is a good example, actually. This film we're talking about is a good example of his charisma and maybe a little bit of his ego kind of out of control. Mm-hmm. Not in a bad way. I think it's a good thing. But it's it's kind of amazing to me how on top of the world he was at one point. Now, we all know that he's suffering from a, a rare form of dementia now. And he's been working like a like a just like a wild man i think just to get as much money as he can because obviously he's not gonna eventually he's not gonna be able to talk or he's not gonna be able to know who he is anymore yeah so he's had a really rough go of it and people were like why is he making all these movies i mean usually it's a sign somebody's either got one tax trouble two they're going through a divorce or three they got health problems if they start making you know five million dollar uh salaries on on movies i was really pumped when death wish got announced and he was announced as paul kersey i thought well this is the comeback to kind of the movies i want him to make but that movie is it's fine but it's it's more like a stain and a pair of underwear than it is a movie really you're, you're being awfully oh. kind to that movie <laughs> what what i uh, liked it yeah i'm with jose i didn't mind it i mean i'm, I'm not gonna I sit mean, there it, it was yeah. fine but yeah. Yeah, come on man it's wrong <laughs> We're talking. It's like rewrite for me as a cinema man. A cinema man. It's like uh, rewriting the Bible. Okay, man? As a cinema man. Cinema As a cinema man. As a cinema man. It's like rewriting I, the Bible, man. You can't. You know. I agree. If it was not a remake of Death Wish, it would actually be a pretty damn good movie. But yeah. instead, they tried to go that route. But yeah. yeah. I get it. And Jose, Jose, where where are you on, Bruce? So, uh, this might be, I've always thought of Bruce Willis as like, um, and again, I'm not trying to insult either of them or whatever, but sort of like a more mainstream, like Nick Cage in some ways, you know, uh, somebody who sort of waltzes in and out of the spotlight. And, you know, when he's out, the productions is, aren't so good, but when he's in, it's really great. And the audience, the pub, the, the movie going public allowed him to stretch, right? It would be easy to stick him in the moonlighting diehard, uh, you know, sort of like uh, uh, typecasting. And to be sure, there was a lot of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, like Sammy said, you know, Hudson Hawk really kind of was the, the sort of pinnacle of the, you know, mood lighting plus the diehard plus, yeah. you know, uh, the singer as well. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, his other movies really allowed him to stretch the, the sixth sense hearts war, uh, tears of the sun. I mean, he really did show some great acting power. And I, I loved how, again, you know, he had his run in the nineties and then in 2006, he kind of had a run too with the, you know, live free or die hard. And then, you know, a good day to die hard. Um, but I think right around like, you know, red Two, expendables Two, And then I think he did a Gina Carano movie or something right around there was like, eh, what's happening here. Um, 
And then, of course, I, I felt the same way about Death Wish. I thought, okay, here it is. He's coming Extra- back. Extraction. Wasn't that called Extraction? It was called. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, yeah. it was called Extraction. Um, did they dub Gina Carano in that one, too? No, I th- I thought no was, they did not. I thought it so was it's called, terrible. I thought it was Gina Carano in Cinnamon. <laughs> in Cinnamon. Gina Carano stars in I Wish I Would Have Shut the Fuck Up. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, and then we got Glass, which was great, right? The trilogy. Unbreakable. I mean, um, unbreakable. Yeah, yeah, great. I, you know, I've never, I've never seen Split or Glass. Oh, Split's so really good. good. Split's yeah. fantastic. I like you glass. can skip Glass. I like glass. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, unfortunately, yeah, he he cropped up in these films that I would start to watch, and he'd only been in for like ten minutes or something, and then I'm like, what? Wait, he's on the poster. What's happening? And so I kind of. If I saw there was like a, you know, a short, a small budget and then he had a picture on it, I was like, well, I'm not going to waste my time with that. And then it kind of came out that like, you know, that's what he was doing to yeah. earn his money and stuff. And and I, it didn't make me want to go back and watch them, honestly. But um, I don't know. Yeah, he was a true movie star. And he and Demi Moore were, you know, they were a great couple until they weren't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, yeah, he's. And his green eyes, and I fell in love with him on Moonlighting. That's I just will yeah, forever remember Moonlighting. Yeah, I did as well. Yeah, I would yeah. I would say Moonlighting, Sunset with James Gardner. I loved him in, and uh, Blind Date. I thought he was fantastic oh, yeah. in. Um, that that's what made me a fan even before the Die Hard. But Brad, where were you at on Bruce? I mean, topic of the day since it's Tarantino's birthday. I mean, he was butching. Pulp he's really fiction. Good. Yeah, he's really good in Pulp Fiction. He's I mean, really good in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Really, really good. Um, good. You know, he also, I like Willis because he dips his toe into like heavy sci-fi, say 12 Monkeys. Mm-hmm. I think he's excellent yeah. in 12 Monkeys. Fifth Element, he's really fun. Uh, Last Man Standing, I like as well. Um, Sin Pulp City, Man. and then he does another sci-fi film with Looper. Like, I like him a lot. Like, I think he does, I, you know, outside of Die Hard, are you saying like, this is a Bruce Willis film solely. I, I don't know. Um, you know, cause like tw- say for 12 monkeys, there's the Brad Pitt factor too. Mm. fifth element. There's other stuff going on. I mean, fifth I element bring, is like everything. Um, I think you bring up an interesting point there though, because to me, die hard isn't a Bruce Willis movie. It's a John McTiernan movie, but die hard two is a Bruce Willis movie. Yeah. I th- yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, ooh, maybe the six, that's I a mean, fair assessment. That, is I, the sixth sense. Is that a, is that a Bruce Willis film? Oh, like, it's just hard that, to say. That is, that is, yeah, it is hard to say, but I can say without a doubt that is an M night Shyamalan movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you think about it that he's like one step removed from say a Tom Cruise. Cause you could say yeah. that's a Tom Cruise film. I yeah, don't yeah. know outside of, uh, out of like Die Hard If you're saying, Oh, that's a Bruce Willis film. Oh, I man. I think he can hold his own. Yeah, we're good. I'm not, I'm not, there's like five people you could say, like, that is a such and such film. I think, yeah. I think think he's just a tear down from that. I think there's pure Bruce Willis films. And when I think of that, I think of stuff like Tears of the Sun, Striking Distance, Hostage. Yeah, but none of those films are like huge films. No, they're not really. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a valid point. It's interesting because his career really. It's run the gamut, right? He comes from nothing. He gets on TV. He becomes huge. Yeah. And then he kind of meanders a little bit, gets huge again, and then just kind of fades away. It's an interesting career. 
It is. I, I, I understand what you're saying about Die Hard, but I don't think Die Hard works without Bruce Willis. It, it just well, doesn't at all. Yeah, I'm not arguing that. And, yeah. and I, I, I equate Bruce Willis's career very similar to my actual favorite actor of all time, Jackie Chan. I mean, Jackie Chan's career, <laughs> it's it's nowhere right now. Now, there's a possibility his next film, Right Come On, on that's Right On out. looks fucking dope. I, I, <laughs> I do agree. I'm really excited about that. But I'm also tempering that. And I'm all seriousness. I got, I got kind of excited when I saw the trailer. Uh, but I'm tempering that based on what he's been putting out the last couple of decades. But there's no doubt you look at Jackie Chan and go, look at the 70s, 80s, early 90s. Jackie Chan owned Hong Kong action cinema and really um, you would just get excited about his films. And for me, Bruce Willis did exactly that in late eighties going in through the nineties and then had stuff like looper and stuff like that, that, that would get you interested again. But Bruce for me is one of my favorite movie stars of all time. And I would say he's one of the most interesting actors because if you look at his filmography the guy was not afraid to work with different um, genres, directors, scripts. I mean, he's all over the place. And uh, I've always respected that, you know, and and you can say to varying degrees, one's successful, you know, and one's not. But you cannot take away from the fact that in the 90s, Bruce Willis was probably the most influential and important actor in terms of the modern uh, pop movie going experience. And, and he, he really delivered and he, he brought to the forefront a lot of just a lot of content that probably wouldn't have been seen had Bruce Willis not been attached to it. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I agree. I think people forget how important he is to like film history, yeah. especially for that time period. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'd be interested. It's, it's an interesting theory to think about die hard with another lead to sit around and think about the action stars of that time. Sylvester Stallone. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tom Selleck. Uh, I mean, I mean, because like, isn't the yeah. whole the whole appeal is like it's an everyman, right? it's an average Joe, exactly. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It, it really, I think Die Hard is the, one of the great examples in Hollywood history of kind of everything kind of coalescing at one point mm-hmm. and just kind of yeah. working out. And it's it's just a it's a it's a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's it, it's something. Shift. It's serendipity it's a, all coming together. And it's like a paradigm paradigm shift of some sort. Yeah. Yeah, or we we get away from the muscle bound guys and we go to the, wait. I mean, they would still kind of linger, obviously, in the eighties, but you kind of get away from that a little bit. You yeah, know? you probably don't have John Wick without Die Hard. Absolutely not. I don't think you have the modern action film without Die Hard, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Or Joel no, I Silver. <laughs> no, I, I do not think for one second you have the modern action film without Die Hard. Yeah, but to me, and this is just me, that has more to do with John McTiernan than it does Bruce Willis for me. Yeah, and, and I would say John McTiernan is super important to that equation, but it's almost like, look, if two plus two equals four, mm-hmm. McTiernan's one, two, Willis is the other two because his performance sold um, everything about the John McClane character, and yeah, okay. McTiernan right. provided the environment, the direction, um, and and really the vision for that film, but it doesn't work without that performance. Yeah. I mean, there's so many factors with that movie, and I know we're not reviewing Die Hard, but I mean the the whole Alan Rickman thing. Yeah, even the Hart Bachner character, it's it's pivotal. There's always the you know the the Hans, idiot Bobby. Yeah, Bobby Hans Bobby. Um, you know? by by the way, um, 
I think, you know, Willis has such a, he had such a hold on like the pop cultural zeitgeist, you yeah. know, um, by, uh, I wanted to mention that the national film registry has actually registered Die Hard as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. And I will also note that Moonlighting, in a way, when those two characters actually eventually got together and had sex, it what? doomed the show. Uh-huh. Yeah. It it just it destroyed the show. And so well, every film, here's, here's, every show after that was like, yeah. well, don't go the moonlighting route. <laughs> well, the problem is she wore that t-shirt that said, show me your, you know, what hole. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. Well, um, inside baseball joke for everyone. (laughs) There's so many. So look, uh, there's so many other people to talk about in this film. I'm just going to run through it, uh, and jump in on your thoughts. I mean, the next one that really is the lead here is Danny Aiello as Tommy five tone. Yeah. Love him so much. 106 acting credits just recently passed in 2019. Oscar nominee for best actor in a supporting role, do the right thing from 1989 Mm -hmm. around this time period. This is what he was working on Harlem nights in 89, Jacob's ladder in 90, the closer in 90. And then in 91, he was working on stuff like once around Hudson Hawk, 29th street and Ruby. Um, I, I I think we would all agree. I mean, Danny Aiello is, uh, he is sort of a national treasure when it comes to character acting, but even as, sort of a co-lead which i think he is in hudson hawk i mean he he brings it right is he a part of the ggtmc hall of fame sammy would you induct him into this no he's not in a weird way but i i do consider him one of the most natural actors Mm -hmm. i can think of now he didn't do he didn't show a lot of diversity all the time he was pretty much danny allo and pretty much everything he did but man he he had a really natural i think kind of screen presence and i never felt like he was acting does that make sense yeah no he's i i there are some people that when you look at that and go well are they really acting or are they just playing themselves i think danny would almost fit that bill that they're playing themselves with little nuances based on you know the character and the environment but you enjoyed it so much you didn't care yeah he seemed really nice and sweet (laughs) Yeah. yeah I mean, Fort Apache, the Bronx, he's in that. I love yeah. him in that. He's in some GGTMC favorites. Fingers, which is a, yes. a great film. Yeah. Harvey Keitel, right? Uh, he, yeah, yeah. He's in some great films. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if he'd, he'd get into the GGTMC pantheon, but he's in some good <clears> we might have to. We might have to submit his ballot for the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, Hide and Plain yeah. Sight's a really good one, too. That's a James, that's a Jimmy Kahn movie that he directed, mm-hmm. and Danny Ailes is in that, and he's good in that as well. Okay. We have to get uh, Andy McDowell as Anna. Now she's kind of coming onto the scene late eighties does six lights in videotape in 89 Greek card in 90, yeah. the object of beauty in 91 Hudson Hawk in 91. She shows up in the player as a cameo playing herself. And then deception in 92 groundhog day in 93 shortcuts in 93 um, really blows up with four weddings and a funeral in 94. And then Jose uh, that same year, she does a film that I'm sure we'll talk about bad girls. From ninety four, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, love that movie. Now, name you would not expect to see, uh, and you know your knee jerk reaction on this name. You are like that that guy's in Hudson Hawk is James Coburn as George Kaplan. Yeah, and and what's funny is you think <laughs> about it and you go, okay, this is the guy that's in like these epic Hollywood movies like The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape. You got to remember too, he also did movies like Our Man Flint and In Like Flint, which are sort yeah. of these spy comedies. 
Um, but about this time period, again, he was doing Young Guns 2, uh, which came out the year before, which makes sense since he was working with uh, Sam Peck and Paul and Pat Garrett and the Billy the Kid. Does Hudson Hawk in 91 and then also does a cameo in The Player as himself. And uh, I, I guess our two main villains, which I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll share our thoughts. For the record, James Coburn is GGTMC. Yes. Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. Okay. That makes total <laughs> you know, sense. Actually, Lehman says that they wanted him specifically because of in like Flint, the, those, those movies. It makes total sense. They wanted sense. him to sort of channel that kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if and folks, if you haven't seen those films from 66 and 67, go watch them. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. They're good. Uh, we get Richard E. Grant as Darwin Mayflower, 142 acting credits. <laughs> I, I love him. I, I think a lot of people, once you, once you see his face, you'll go, Oh, that guy. But about this time period, he's doing mountains of the moon in 90 Henry and June in 1990 as well. In 91, he does LA story with Steve Martin, Hudson Hawk, and then follows it up. Remember, do you guys remember his character in LA story? Uh, no, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. He, yeah. He's the one Roland? who's. He's the one whose uh, testicles ring like bells whenever he takes his pants off. That makes total sense. Well, and it's funny. He's in The Player 2 in 1992, but he doesn't play himself. He actually plays a character in that one. Um, he's a great actor. He's a, I like him in a lot of stuff. Yeah, in, in 92, he also did Dracula. So, Yeah. Uh, and my favorite movie, Spice World. There you go. Yeah. That's right. He was in Spice yeah. World. <laughs> we get uh, Sandra Bernhard as Minerva Mayflower. I I think she's always been a little controversial for some people, like people either love her or hate her. Yeah. Uh, in 86 to 91, she played Rhonda in Pee Wee's Playhouse. She did Hudson Hawk in 91, same year. She did an episode for Tales from the Crypt. I thought this was interesting. Didn't know this. I guess early on in her career, she lent her voice for some voice work for 1980s Shogun Assassin. So the oh, really? uh, Americanized version of Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah, she has a credit for doing mm. voice work on that film. Interesting. Uh, we get Donald Burton as Alfred, the killer butler. Lots of British TV series going back to 1959. Uh, seems to be a big character actor uh, on television. Hell of a mustache. Heck of a yes. mustache. Yes. Uh, now we get to, to some fun roles here playing the candy bars. We start with Don Harvey as Snickers I, around this time period. Now these are the films I remember him from casualties of war, the De Palma film in 89. He worked with Willis in die hard two in 1990 and then did Hudson Hawk. Uh, David Caruso is Kit Kat. Now he hadn't done NYPD blue yet. That started in 93. So He's doing he movies. He started overacting yet, in other words. It, exactly. So he did King of New York in 90, which I totally forgot he was in. I guess you could say he had a little bit of a sweet tooth. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the King oh, of boy. <laughs> yeah. Well, Caruso is doing edit these, that in, Troy. Would I do that? Just uh, edit in. Uh, uh, sure. Yeah. Not. Um, so he's doing these films like King of New York, Hudson Hawk. <laughs> Hits it big on TV with NYPD Blue, then goes back to Hollywood to try his luck in movies like Kiss of Death and Jade. Um, and NYPD blew up his career. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> sure. Uh, we're going to do David, Jade at some point in time. Please David, God, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> David Caruso blew up his career. He got he on did. CSI Miami and he just, man. Yeah. There's yeah. terrible behind the scenes stories about David Caruso. He, he just seems like that guy, though. 100%. He does. Well, people, I mean, when he, when he left NYPD blue to do films, 
and then Kiss of Death and then Jade came out, they were like, you're done, pal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, moving on to Almond Joy is Lorraine Toussaint. Uh, she had a pretty Toussaint. Toussaint. Okay. Like croissant, Troy. Croissant. Lorraine Croissant plays Almond Joy. Croissant. Croissant. What? One Life to Live, 1988. That's where she gets her start, right? Yep. Does mostly TV work. Does Hudson Hawk. Shows up in a you know film here and there, like Point of No Return in 93, then goes back, does a lot of TV. She has a crazy film. Like, I, I'm sorry, I don't recognize her that much, but like when I looked at her filmography, I was like, oh my God, she has worked steady for like the last 40 years. Yeah. Like, she has a really go? good agent. Yeah. I yeah. Think she's, I think she's uh, really pretty for the record. Yeah. yeah. 100%. She is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember she Point of No she's, Return. She's great in that too. Yeah. Oh my God. I love it. Yeah. That, that that whole scene where she freaks out and then they just shoot her. I mean, she's working That's in that show, the equalizer. On oh yeah. With, uh, I, with, I love that show. Yeah. With, with Queen, Queen Latifah. Latifah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Still working. Uh, one of our favorites, which I'm sure we'll talk about, Mr. Butterfinger himself, Andrew Brynarski. 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 Love him. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. So he, he's taking the, uh, in this film, he's taking the uh, Boz mullet to the next level. Oh, my God. It's beautiful. He certainly does. It's just beautiful. <laughs> it really is the Boz on steroids. Like, he does have my three. favorite line in the movie, which we'll talk about. Probably. Yes. Uh, he got to start with a film I called. Know so, were you asking a question? Maybe. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's it's possibly the most inappropriate question ever asked in a movie. I think. <laughs> to this day, it still shocks me. Is it me. by definition if you ask? Okay, we'll get to. Yeah, it. we'll get to that. Um, last but certainly not least, I know. I know this name's coming. Could you get a drum roll, please? Yeah, I was so excited because I totally forgot. But <laughs> Frank Stallone plays Caesar Mario. Uh, the Mario brothers. Yeah. So we've talked about Frank. We kicked off the year talking about Frank Stallone. Moody girl. Moody girl. Uh, here's, here's what's crazy. So he does easy kill in 1990. You're like, what is that? Don't know. It's probably awesome. Has Frank Stallone in it. It's, it's, it's not bad. Okay. He does Hudson Hawk in 91 and you're like, okay, what else did he do in 91? He does a film called the roller blade seven okay yeah here's here's a summary in a futuristic society a sword wielding roller skater fights evil ninjas punk roller skaters and is sent on an important rescue mission this film also stars karen black don stroud ronda sheer and joe estevez so the thing about uh, the uh, Rollerblade 7 is this actually has a GGTMC tie-in. Scott Shaw is the lead in Rollerblade 7. Now, Scott Shaw is a very weirdly interesting B-movie actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you sh- I- I'm not going to go into all the details about Scott Shaw right now. We've talked about him over the years. He's made some really messed up movies. Um, check uh, Just do your own research. Okay. He, uh, he really thinks he's a big star. He's, he's very interesting. Well, based on the the explanation and who's in this film, I, I think he is. And I need, okay, I, I I think this might be my favorite movie ever. Uh, yeah, it looks amazing. Yeah. I watched yeah. the trailer today, and I'm like, I have to see this film. I mean, Scott Shaw has got some great titles in his uh in his repertoire, but he doesn't. Wow. He wasn't in 2016. That was a Teenage Merman, like Frank Stallone was. Oh God, Frank Stallone is <laughs> he, Hawk, he is he or, in the Pantheon? Or, GGTMC Pantheon uh, musically. Hawk Warrior of the Wheel Zone is another. Frank Stallone Jam, dude, and Op- Operation Belvis Bash. 
Uh, we're just we might just do a Frank Stallone month at this point. Um, Moody girl, please stay. <laughs> I'm gonna have to call to the bullpen for that one. Okay, fill my lonely world. Uh, real quick, let's run through some production and development. We already talked about sort of the the origination of Hudson Hawk and uh, how it started between Robert Kraft and Bruce Willis. Uh, big time producer Joel Silver, who'd previously experienced huge success with Willis and Die Hard One and Two, threw money at this film. Bags and bags of money. So oh, yeah. originally it was supposed to cost $42 million. That was the budget. But as Brad talked about, the budget went way over that. And um, I know you quoted it around uh, mid-60s. Mm-hmm. Some people have said it's been as high as $70 million. I couldn't find anything that like specifically said. That. I had seen some stuff, but it was never like Definitive. cited anywhere. Yeah. Uh, the shooting schedule slid from 81 to 160 or excuse me, 106 days of filming before it finally wrapped. It wasn't helped by the script rewrites that were taking place during filming. And and somebody said at some point there was like 80 some versions of the screenplay uh, that was floating around. And the final drafts. Yeah. The final script wasn't locked into place until three weeks before the end of filming. That's how many rewrites were occurring. Director Michael Lehman was being given conflicting notes from the studio, the producers and the lead actor as to how he should direct the film. Reports surfaced that Willis was unofficially calling the shots and Lehman was just following. Willis did address the rumor by saying, quote, we all contributed ideas. If I thought up a joke, we used it. But Michael directed this film. Now, I I, I find this little piece of information just super funny. So Richard Grant had a a memoir called uh, With Nail. And he goes into scathing yet hilarious details about Hudson Hawk. Stories are told of Willis delaying filming as he would watch back his close-ups on the video replay monitors after each take. The late Danny Aiello demanding rewrites to his character to ensure he didn't die in a huge car fireball but lives to see another day. Spoiler alert. Yep. And of Bunny the dog not being able to fetch the tennis ball. So that caused a bunch of delays. Think that dog came back to life? Because, boy. Yeah. Uh, Grant's (laughs) stop-start Hudson Hawk hell lasted four months but only amounted to roughly 20 days of actual filming so he's he's working on this thing for four months but only does 20 days of filming leaving him to reflect quote this movie is a one-way ticket out of my mind he's on the brad schedule <laughs> yeah uh this is for you brad yes there was a video game hudson hawk was a platform game developed by special effects limited sony ImageSoft released it in the u.s for the game boy and nes the player assumes the role of Hudson Hawk, a cat burglar. He is sent on a mission to steal three Da Vinci artifacts. Walking through various levels in this platform game, the player must avoid sounding alarms. In addition, security guards and dogs show up to hamper the mission. Hudson Hawk can pacify the enemies by punching them or launching tennis balls at them. That's, <laughs> that's the video game. Hey, this thing won a bunch of awards. It's swept at the, well, not totally swept, it... It got nominated six times at the 12th annual Golden Raspberry Awards. So it won Worst Picture, it won Worst Director, and it won Worst Screenplay. It was nominated for Worst Actor, but Bruce Willis lost to Kevin Costner for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah, can you believe that? Worst Supporting Actor was nominated for that, Richard E. Grant, but he lost to Dan Aykroyd for Nothing But Trouble, which we're going to talk about you're coming up ah. and worst actress Sandra Bernhardt was nominated, but she lost to Sean Young for a kiss before dying. So there you go. 
Oh, that's unfair. Well, no, it's not. Yeah, no, it's not. Is it? <laughs> no, is it really? <laughs> not fair. It's not. Okay, gentlemen, we are going to take a really tinsy little quick break, and then we're going to come back. And uh, I think I know where three of us land. Once again, I don't know where one person lands on this film. I'm really curious um, where this is going to go. But let's take a quick break. We're going to come back, and we're going to share our thoughts on 1991's Hudson Hawk. Well, you see what I get from the refreshment counter. Oh, boy, popcorn and hot dogs and ice cream and, oh, boy, sparkling ice cold Coca-Cola. Oh, boy, that tastes good. Have you been to the refreshment counter? Remember, your favorite snack will taste especially good with world-famous ice-cold Coca-Cola. Yes, sir. A slight emergency? There's only one man to cope with it. Find Derek Flint. Yes, James Coburn is back as Derek Flint, the master of the kiss, the karate, and the kill. And you're back in action with him, from Moscow to the Caribbean. Back in danger with him. Back in fun with him. You're in like Flint. With Lee J. Cobb. And Gene Hale, the fabulous face that launched a thousand intrigues. If there's a story with more burning excitement, more glamorous intrigue, it hasn't been filmed yet. In Like Flint. back you know what brad we just need to start with you you're the one that has been really quiet uh in our group chats and texts about this film we're all quoting it sharing stuff but nothing nothing from you so i gotta know it's been killing me all week where do you stand on hudson hawk actually you've known me for a long time what what does your heart tell you uh my heart tells me that you are where fun goes to die (laughs) Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, this <laughs> this movie. This movie. Um look at Jose's face. I, uh, so this is not the I I had seen this. So I remember a friend of mine had this on VHS. I believe he recorded it from HBO because this thing was on HBO all the time. Yes. So there was a lot of language in this, but there's no nudity or anything and the violence though there's a lot of it there's no real blood really so we were always able to watch this as like 10 year olds which looking back on it, it's like i would never watch let my 10 year old watch this um but so i had seen this probably 50 times before i was 12 years old um <laughs> and i had not seen it probably in 20 years 25 five years um and i think the reason for that is deep down i knew that this was a pile of shit (laughs) i uh i hate this i hate this movie um 
totally, <laughs> like totally. Like, I knew it. it, it I makes, knew it. No goddamn sense. We're like, we're in a city I, together for like two days, and you wouldn't make eye contact with me for very long. So well, I knew something there was we up. Go. There yeah. we go. I was, was, I was ashamed. I yeah. I like tonally, it's so weird. Like they'll crack a joke, and then someone will literally blow up, and then uh, yeah, there will be something, and then they'll make a joke, and he'll be standing in front of Collisionsville, and you're like, okay, like, god damn it, like. <laughs> so heavy handed with the jokes. Um, and some of this acting, like I, like, it's amazing. I, I get I it. She's, she's supposed to be doing this, but Sandra Bernhardt is nails on a goddamn chalkboard. Every time she, ch- she talks and I, I don't like Bruce Willis in this either. Like shut your you mouth. Go, oh my you God. Go from die hard to this. And then like three years later, you're butch. Like I, I struggled with this a lot. Like I was like, this is a hundred minutes long. And we start off with Leonardo da Vinci and I'm like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> and then there's like this, this checkoffs like da Vinci glider thing that we use in the third act that helps them escape. I, I, I just, I think it's the tone. I think it, the tone really turned me off that it would be this violent at one point and then like really bad jokes at the next. And like, there is like a moment where Bruce Willis and the dude are fighting on the roof and he's like swaying back and forth. Like he's broken. Mm-hmm. And I felt bad for Bruce Willis. I was like, why are you doing this? There's a part, there's a part where they're like, get like tranquilizer darts. Yeah. And I, I just, all, all the jokes, all the jokes, like I, I'm surprised my eyes have come back to their neutral spot. Cause I was rolling them so far back. I hear that I scene like, with the tranquilizer darts is shown at UCLA for like the young actor studios. I'm like this, this is a performance and this, and this is how you emote with your face and your eyes. That, no. That's what I heard. That's the rumor. No, I hate it. Yep. I hate this movie. I hate this movie so much. I hate it so much. Like <laughs> irrationally, I hate it. I'm oh. gonna put that on a loop and just play it. I hate this. I hate this movie so much. I hate it. <laughs> Man, you're so dramatic. Goodness. <laughs> Obviously, it. I was so right. I'm like, well, this is where fun's gonna die. Brad's going to watch this thing and poo poo <laughs> all over it. I just knew it. Cause you wouldn't even make eye contact with me at Whorehound very I was ashamed. long. I was ashamed. You were you, cause you, I could see it in your eyes. Like you just wanted to yell at me. Um, yeah. Okay. I was so happy to see you. And I was like, I want to punch you. The- <laughs> <laughs> um, Jose, let's, let's, uh, let's cleanse the palate a little bit with your, with your thoughts on, uh, Hudson Hawk. So I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Brad's reaction to this film is why it had such terrible box office because I I think what happened was people were expecting something along the lines of Die Hard and what they got was like the Three Stooges meets National Treasure or it, something. It was like marketed they, an action film. If you go back and look at the trailers, it mm-hmm. Die Hard 2 placed it firmly into the we don't know what to do with it so let's market it like an action film so it's it's funny that you also mentioned we don't know what to do with it because uh 
watching it now, I can see that it is very Three Stooges, very, you know, in in like Flint, that sort of like, you know, macho kind of like on PC. I'm from New Jersey, New York kind of thing going on. Um, it's, it's really more like slapstick, slapstick physical comedy, but they're also breaking a ton of like conventions for this kind of story. Like it being like neo-noir in some ways. And there are these cat burglars and they're cool cats and all this sort of weirdness. But for a very long time, I lumped this movie in with say big trouble in little China. One of those movies that's almost like uncategorizable oh my god i think brad's having an aneurysm uh, he is he is having an aneurysm um where you try to describe the plot to somebody and they're like that does not sound like a great movie and yet it's fun and i mentioned big trouble in little china because this movie just hums along and it doesn't care whether you my blood is boiling so much my blood is boiling so much (laughs) sorry this movie just kind of drops you in the middle of everything and it doesn't care if you catch up it doesn't even care if it makes sense it's just throwing all this stuff at you and i found it wildly entertaining i mean just the notion of cat burglars and then you know at the beginning of this you know there he's throwing danny Ayel is saying song titles and then he's doing these like minutes you know five minutes and 21 yeah. seconds or whatever and yeah. then later you find out that that's what they use to time in their head when they do these break-ins but i did not expect him to start singing and mm-hmm. doing all these fun things and uh i just thought that that was a real fun kind of point of difference you know Good to be and, on the star. yeah and it just and then it just gets even more bonkers with the 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 C the CIA characters named after candy bars and then just everything. I mean, Andy McDowell starts doing dolphin noises. I mean, it's it's just <laughs> everyone was given like these wide swaths to to craft their characters and they go bonkers. They are choices that probably doomed the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you listen to this commentary, Lehman even admits, you know, they had cranked up the Mayflower so high that even he was like, people are not going to like this, but you know what? We're going to do it. And uh, quite frankly, I, their performances are so bonkers. Grant is like on cocaine. I, I don't know what's happening. And Sandra Bernhardt is just, she's fantastic. I think for months on end, I went, the dolphin is dead. The dolphin <laughs> is dead. Come on, you bitch. Uh, <laughs> did that for like months after watching this, but it just... It's a miss. I think it's a misunderstood movie. It's a hoot to watch. Um, I do question why it looks like it's filmed like a 60s movie, but I think it's that whole in like Flint kind of thing that they were going for because it, it's very much shot like a 60s and 70s movie. It doesn't have any high gloss to it like you think a Joel Silver movie would. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I bought into the vibe of everything, the weirdness, the eclecticness of everything. Um, I don't know. It, it might have put Michael Lehman in movie jail, but uh, I'm here for it. I love it. I love uh, Hudson Hawk. Does uh, does it make? I mean, does it make sense then that this thing has such a big cult following now that it's in the black? I mean, they they talk about it now as oh, yeah. it it makes pretty good money now. Oh yeah, um, it, it's a repeat watch. Like like I, it's right on the shelf with Showgirls. I, I have seen this movie a bazillion times. And okay, I love it. 
So you mentioned, uh, and I have a quick question for you, Brad. So in like Flint has come up a couple of times, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, that also brings to mind the Dean Martin films, the Matt Helm series. Are you fans of those films at all? Or have you seen them? I mean, I've seen in like Flint. I, I'm not like a big Dean Martin guy. Like that just doesn't speak to me. Oh my God. Um, oh my God. <laughs> but, like why? I mean, I'm a kid like mostly of the nineties. Like that shit was. Yeah. Out. But I know how much you like film. Have you gone back to, to look at Dean Martin films? I have, but I, I, again, like I'm not like super, in love with them. I don't know if that makes me a bad person. Maybe it does. But. Probably. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. no well, absolutely does make just, you a bad person. <laughs> I think it's just maybe knowing the source. Cause this is kind of like, I mean, if you know that stuff, you kind of get the vibe of this and the camaraderie between Aiello and, and, and Willis or whatever. It's kind of like a modern update of that, but um, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Well, what about you, Sammy? Where, where do you land on this? Uh, I enjoy Hudson Hawk. I enjoy it quite a bit. I, I'm one of the few people who liked it the first time I saw it and didn't understand why nobody else did. I thought it was just bonkers and goofy and silly, and I thought it was just the right thing for Bruce Willis to do at the time. I will say it does feel like a vanity project gone wrong in some ways. Uh, it definitely has that vibe oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. in more ways than one. But I am a fan of those, right? So. I enjoy when movie stars kind of lose their mind a little bit and uh, do something that they think is genius because, uh, you know, it, you, you come away with some unintentional, sometimes funny, some unintentional gold and some unintentional junk. And uh, all those things are kind of fun because, you know, Hollywood's, uh, you know, they're going to try to make the the most commercial product for the biggest and widest audience possible. Every now and then, somebody can get just enough power to get something like this made, and you think to yourself, "How do they do that? How do they pull that off?" And it's never. And, and you're right. And most of the time, you're thinking when it gets received the way this one does, you're like, "Well, that's never going to happen again." Yeah, but it always does. It always does. Yeah, it always yes. does. It always comes back around, and it always happens again. I mean, this is a movie that has a boo boo impersonation. It has Bruce Willis saying, "Slurp my butt." Yes. Yeah. It has uh, <laughs> it has James Coburn doing his Bruce Lee uh, karate. Yeah, it has uh, it has a purple camouflage. Don't know if I've ever seen that before in any movie. Um, I'm sure Prince probably had it at some point in time. Yeah, that's probably. a good point. Uh, it's got Danny Aiello giving some of my favorite line deliveries, which is "Can you fucking believe it?" <laughs> which he says perfectly. Um, can we it, can we can we stop for a second? Can we just say, joking about getting coffee is is just not something I find very funny. If you need coffee, you should get it. I it it just <laughs> I'm joking, but wow. Well, I mean, they were they were ragging on the fact that like cappuccinos are unmasculine, right? And this is before yeah. Starbucks, before yeah. everybody was like, now we're all drinking cappuccinos. And by the way, just so you know, the kind of if a list if listeners are listening to this and they haven't seen Hudson Hawk. Just so you know, there is a scene in here where these two night guards are talking about like uh, there's like 170 Wongs in the Chinese phone book. And then the one guy goes, that's a lot of Wong numbers. But if you listen, <laughs> there's funny. even a music cue to yeah. it that yeah. goes, ding, 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 
or whatever. Yeah, no, so that's the kind of that's the kind of movie you're seeing. But you have to be. I think you have to be ready for that. It is dad joke heavy. Let's let's say it, it's yeah. got a lot of dad jokes. Yeah. It dick slaps you with the jokes. Let's just say that. <laughs> or, I mean, it, yeah. I like. I mean, I like them. And there's little jokes too. I like like the little jokes. Like I want to teach the handicap how to yodel. I mean, yes. it's just a throwaway. Oh my god, yes. But it's like it's so inappropriate and uh, kind of goofy that they're throwing these zingers out there. Now, I can see Brad's angle. I want to make sure I'm clear on that. I can see where he's coming from because I know people who watched this with me and absolutely hated every second of it. I get it. But by the time you get to Bunny Ball Ball and he goes flying out the castle window. My favorite scene of the entire film. I... (laughs) I'm in tears every time I see that scene. Yeah. And what I arguably think is some of the greatest dialogue ever written at the end of the film when he says, Will you play Nintendo with me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh I don't know. I I, I this movie makes me smile. Uh it, it makes me laugh. I think it's it's really goofy and it's not what you expect from a Bruce Willis movie of this period. But I'm glad that this is in his filmography because this probably feels more like what Bruce Willis. I mean, this to, this to me feels like this is who Bruce Willis is. Yeah. Uh, every interview I've ever seen with him or any videos I've seen with him and paparazzi and stuff. He seems to be a guy who likes to joke around a lot. Doesn't take anything very seriously. Obviously, he's got some serious problems going on now. But this feels like it. It feels like a Burt Reynolds movie. From the seventies, it feels yes. like a redneck romance. Yep. Yeah, and it it feels like that. I don't think it's as good as some of Burt Reynolds' best redneck romance films, for the record. But I do get the Bruce the the Burt Reynolds vibe of a bunch of people hanging out, uh, making a Bruce Willis movie, and this, by a complete definition, is a Bruce Willis movie. <laughs> Uh, yeah. We talked about that in the opening. This is your example of a Bruce Willis movie. Um, it's just, it just, it's having fun being what it is. And I, I think the key thing for me is the movie's not long. It's only, it's only a hundred minutes long. And for me, it's kind of breezy. It's convoluted too, but I, I'm okay with that. I, I, I had some fun with it. Okay. Yeah. Starts off in 1581. <laughs> I know it's pretty crazy. I, I do love the one line that Coburn says. Ha, we blow up space shuttles for breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. He's got some good lines in the movie. I keep looking for him. Coburn's got some really good lines in the movie. There's another one he says that really makes me laugh. You just feel like he's there and like he's even Sandra Bernhardt's getting on his nerves. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, like shut up. No, I, I, I think we said it. I, this is one of the most unique films to come out of mainstream cinemas in, in the 90s. Uh, is it flawed? Maybe for some people like Brad. I, I think at the end of the day, when this came out, I saw this multiple times. And when I was working in the movie theater and we had the opportunity to like take movie posters home, I was like, I want the Hudson Hawk. And everybody's like, you can have it. Like nobody (laughs) wanted that poster. Um, and I, I, you know, I still have it. I love this film. I, I find the things that people find flawed to be some of the best parts of the film though. So all of the things that Brad is talking about, um, the, the music numbers during the heist, the Looney Tunes quality of the film, the overacting, the humor, the dad jokes. It does everything. have a Bugs Bunny quality to it. You're right. It, it does, 100. Um, percent And I, I, I love all of that, all of all of those things associated with it. And I know Willis really wanted to make an action comedy musical, and and for me, he pulled it off big time. 
this is one of the few vanity projects. And you talked about this same, uh, Sammy, that it's, it's a vanity project that I think works, but more importantly, it showcases Willis's ability as an actor and a movie star. I think both are on display here. And that's, that's what makes me smile about it. Now, I'm not going to say that you, and I, I like your comparison to Burt Reynolds films, right? So Burt Reynolds would make these comedies, especially, you know, late seventies, early eighties. And yeah. you may look at this and go, well, this is kind of like a Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise joint, something of that nature. And I would say, okay, it, yeah, it is that a little bit. It's also a little bit of the in like Flint movies or the Matt Helm movies. Um, you really get a Bob Hope and Bing Crosby road movie vibe. So I, I really do think this is one of those things where Willis and others, even Kraft, may have set back and said, here are all the movies we grew up on. Here are all the movies we liked. I mean, there's stories about Willis saying, I want I wanted to do a James Bond film, but you know they're never going to hire me, so I want to make the anti-James Bond film. And so there's a little bit of that in Hudson Hawk. But I, I think this is Willis basically saying, here's all of this stuff I like and some things I want to make fun of, some things I want to cherish, some things I just want to, I, I want to show off my acting chops, both comedic and um, not necessarily dramatic, but probably charismatic. And mm-hmm. it's all over the place and it feels very Monty Python-esque at times, especially some of the performances, that zany quality. And uh, it works. Every second of this film works 100%. We'll be doing the, you know, 146 proper episodes. And this is the one where I'm like, I, I have to say 100%, you're so wrong about this film, Brad. But I would also say 50% of the population is so wrong about this film too. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm not saying that this is like a litmus test of like, you, you walk up to somebody and go, do you like Hudson Hawk? And they go, no, I think it's stupid. And you go, great. I never want to talk to you again. You wouldn't do that. Right. <laughs> but, but this Would is you? maybe, um, is this, is this when we break up Troy? This might be when we break up. No, <laughs> not at all. But this is one of those films though, that if I run across somebody who talks about Hudson Hawk with the same energy or appreciation I do, I, I immediately know if we were to sit down and watch that, it's probably going to be us quoting it and kind of pointing it. Oh, remember that scene? And oh, that was so good. And I know it's going to be a fun movie going experience. But this is one of the the few films that when you watch it with like minded people, I think it's a blast to watch with. But even when I watch it alone, I'm laughing throughout the entire the entire sequence. Um, and I, I'm sure we're going to talk about it. But there are some lines that just take you off guard from the comedy perspective. And I will say in the nineties, there is a sequence in this film that no, no other film in the nineties even came close to topping in terms of both comedy from a script perspective and also from a visual perspective. And we're talking about the infamous scene where you have Butterfinger Snickers and Almond Joy sitting in that little Italian car with Butterfinger in the backseat, taking up the entire backseat. And they are outside of um, Andy McDowell's apartment building. And I don't, I don't know who wants to talk about this, but that to me is one of the greatest comedic scenes ever filmed in the 90s. How it play, It still shocks me to this day what happens. But even when you're listening to it, just the visuals of those three sitting in the little car 
And then even Butterfinger whipping out his Dr. Seuss book and reading it just has me on the floor with belly laughs. I, I don't, that's my favorite scene out of the entire film in terms of comedy. I don't know what you guys have, um, not Brad, but maybe you too. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it just, it's a great example of, you know, something catching you way off guard. I yeah. mean, it's, it's as off guard of a comment that comes out of nowhere of any comedy <laughs> bit you'll ever we say have. the joke. Cause I have a question to follow up the joke. Yeah. Uh-oh. So they're sitting there, they're looking, they're kind of on a stake out there. <clears throat> and then Butterfinger says, uh, well, there, there's, they go, well, I wonder what's going on up there. Do we, do we <laughs> bust in or something? Yeah. Right. He's like, do you want me to, you want me to rape them? And that there's this pause between Don Harvey and uh, Toisson. Lorraine Toisson. Yeah. And and they just kind of look at each other and then they're like, read your book, Butterfinger. And so, it's just. And then he starts bizarre. to read it. And then they're like, to yourself or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Very bizarre. So I, I have a question. This movie comes out in 1991. Nirvana's third and final album comes out in 1993. There's a song on that album called Rape Me. I wonder oh if gosh. Kurt Cobain was a big Hudson Hawk fan. <laughs> he could have been. Maybe. <laughs> I, is that in the linear notes of the album? Like I think this so. song is dedicated to Butterfinger. Like there's a like Bruce Willis or they get a a writing credit because they came up with that line. So. Yeah. I think for me, that joke and so many of the other jokes in here, that that, that just is kind of what the vibe of this film. It just feels like a bunch of people riffing, and it does feel like Michael Lehman is trying to wrangle or herd cats, yes. but uh, he, and he's failing spectacularly. He just like he cannot. He reins us in as much as he can, but I think he might have been out of his element. I think he makes a good movie here, for the record, but man. I can't. I I can't imagine going from Heather's and Meet the Applegates to this, and trying to you know slow down a big movie star with the freight train just kind of rolling downhill like he was at that time. Well, and a producer. I mean, I uh, yeah, and a huge producer. Yeah, I, one of I, the most powerful I, people in Hollywood. Yeah, as as much as I look at some of those sequences and go, well, this is Bruce Willis doing his thing, and he really wants this in there there are sequences that I go, okay, this is the Joel silver sequence. And I'm, I'm thinking about the, uh, the ambulance, um, yeah, with the gurney. The so gurney. I, I think, so I've watched this a ton of times and, and each time I try to like put myself in like first time viewer mode. And I think it's, I think it's the, the museum robbery sequence where they're singing and then the ambulance sequence that I think is going to be the turning point for any viewer. Yeah. At that point, you're either on board or you are absolutely hating it. And like, why am I watching this? Because that ambulance sequence, I mean, we get the, how am I driving? 1-800-FUCK-YOU or, or, or I'm going to fucking die or whatever he says. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, you know, the girl's like, hey, are you going to die? And it just the whole scene and things are blowing up and cars are flipping over and it's like, like I said, I think it's those two scenes where and then he ends up in, out. in front of the building that says Collisionsville. That says co- Collisionsville. Yeah. Which, by the way, Lehman says is the actual name. They did not change it. They just decided to stage the shot that way. But it, it, it's a fun, <laughs> almost Marx Brother esque sequence. That's kind of yeah, yeah. Chaplin esque. That's really yeah. you, you look at the Buster Keaton, all of the like classics, right? And you've got Willis trying to get off the gurney, but he hops back on as it's going through. They're going through a toll gate, so he throws the change in. It 
I agree with you hundred percent. When you get to that point in the film and you go, I hate this thing, turn it off because for me, it only gets better. But if, if you're at that point, you, you're not into it. And this is definitely not your cup of tea, but I think it, it is a great example of what the rest of the film brings, which are just these absurdist action sequences or these absurdist scenes that seems to almost make fun of action films um, and just defy all the logic that should take place, which puts it in line with more like a live action Looney Tunes, right? Things blow up because they need to blow up, right? Even when the ambulance tips over, it just blows up. There's no reason for it to blow up. <laughs> and your heroes, they can survive anything. I mean, they fall off a building and then cut away and he's falling into a chair, right? So the, but I'll say this, those sequences feel original. Like that action sequence feels like old time classic Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin type comedy stuff Jackie Chan would do. And while they're not as finessed as maybe what Jackie Chan would have done in the eighties, they're still yeah. a lot of fun to watch in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're well done. I, I, I just think that, you know, I think another director makes a better action movie here than Michael Lehman did. Yeah. But I, <laughs> but I mean, it works. It works. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It just, you know, I think that, what layman's limitations are kind of show through in some of the, some of the sequences. True. I could see that, but I would almost say that if you had like a John McTiernan directing that stuff and that time period, the I focus it would be funny at all though. Yeah. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be funny at all. Yeah. Yeah. No. He's not a funny guy. <laughs> no, he doesn't that's... seem like he's a very funny guy. McTiernan. Uh, so was there, like is tea, hilarious. but there's there a reason he didn't do comedy. So, yeah. but Brad, there's, there's nothing, um, that tickled your fancy from a comedic standpoint in this thing, or was there I anything? I will say to I had appreciate? a little chuckle when the dog is launched out of the window. Yes. <laughs> that, yeah. oh God, but I, that might've been just more of a, like a <sighs> kind of deal. And then like, that's almost like a shock moment. Like that's like, Oh man, they, they go that far. Yeah. I, yeah, but again, it fits with everything that's come up to that point. Uh, mm -hmm. it and, it, and it's a fantastic ending for that dog. That that dog was a little shit. <laughs> I do think that uh, Willis and McDowell have nice chemistry. Yeah. They worked off each other well. Like, I felt. Uh, I don't. I'm don't so? not a fan of McDowell in this. I, I yeah. actually really? am not a big. I'm not a big Andy McDowell fan. Also, there are scenes where her eyeline is like. I wasn't surprised to hear that she came onto the movie really, really late mm. um, because she does have that sort of air of like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, happening. And she seems sort of like lost um, for me, the looks they give each other and stuff. It works. I don't know. There's this smirky kind of seductive. I mean, it does. Looks. It's cute. It's cute. She's like, you know, oh, tough guy. You know, yeah, she kisses him yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And there's a great kind of, you know, like a little moment, like a kind of an inside joke moment for the whole film where she's like, I got bored. So I saved myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good little line, right? Yeah. I, I like, I like them both. I like him and, and Danny together. I think they have, I mean, if, if they're trying oh, to emulate the, the Ben yeah, Crosby, great. Bob Hope, they, they, they nail it from that perspective. Yeah. yeah. Together. They're great. Yes. I, I agree. Uh, they are really the, the main chemistry of the film, but I, I, I enjoyed, like I said, I, I got a nice vibe off of McDowell and Willis and uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's weird this time around watching it and Sandra Bernhardt is a interesting actress slash comedian slash provocateur. Mm -hmm. She is a, uh, 
she is obnoxious by nature. So her whole shtick is to be obnoxious. When she was a comedian, she was obnoxious. When she was on Roseanne, she was obnoxious. But she uses that kind of obnoxious behavior to kind of move kind of transgressive comedy and social taboos forward. And I kind of admire her for that. Um, she's not overly sexy, but somehow she comes across as overly sexy in a weird, confident kind of way. And I've always kind of she has a beauty of her thing. own. She yeah, absolutely has just, a beauty of her own. There's nobody. Here's what you could say about Sandra Bernhardt. There's nobody like her. That's true. Yeah. She is completely unique. Whether you like that or not. I, I feel like she knows that too. And she, she has confidence in that fact. Like she is so unique and there is nobody like her and she owns it. And she's, she's having a lot of Jeff fun Goldblum. with it. Yeah. She's a female <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. That's what she reminds me. Oh my God. <laughs> Troy, Troy, the Cardinal in this movie, I believe is the scary German guy in monster squad. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Also, Jimino, he's in Dune. Yeah. Yeah. Leonardo, yeah that's right. Jimino. Yeah. I also miss, and I don't miss this, but fat shaming people in movies because they do that a lot in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot of fat shaming, a lot of positive. Like, oh boy, this is like we don't do this anymore. No. It's decidedly on PC, but, yeah. but well, uh, I yes, love the but, Mayflowers. By the way, I I know that Grant and Bernhardt are extremely over the top and on drugs, whatever. But I just I get a kick out of their their characterization. I'm telling you, I I, I do too. I love you, Sandra Bullock. I think she's. Or Sandra Bernhardt, she's amazing. Grant's Sandra great. Bullock's in this. awesome too. Yeah, Grant's yes. Grant's fantastic. They're, they're both so memorable. Say what you will. Yeah, I mean, it's I, it's. I can imagine Lehman off camera going like, "Hey, Richard, uh, Sandra, can you guys take it down a notch?" Just, just one. <laughs> no, one see, notch. I can see. Oh, you I want us to go Lehman higher? Going higher? Bigger. Yeah. I can see Lehman going bigger, bigger. No, I, I, I don't think. I don't think he. I think with those two personalities, he, he had no hope. Sometimes you yeah. put two actors together that are so big and and kind of provocative. And and obviously Grant is kind of feeding off of Bernhardt here. And and Grant can be big. He can be quiet, but he can also be very big. So and, there's uh, that scene, the world it. there's that world domination scene when he's in the boardroom. Yeah. And remember, mm -hmm. uh, he walks around and he says, uh, I made my first billion when I was 16. And then he slaps the butler. Lehman says that that was completely ad-libbed, that um that the Don Burton had no idea he was about to get slapped, but there was such a atmosphere on set that Burton just went with it. And his, yeah. his reaction is priceless. But, yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny that I know that they're having fun with like a James Bond ish villain, like turned up to 11. But I, I have to imagine, like, I, I guess the question I would have is when Mike Myers was doing Austin powers, I mean, did, did he even look at Hudson Hawk and go, I want to emulate that type of memorable villain or character for some of the stuff that he was doing for like his Austin power films. I mean, I, I, I don't think this fits in line with the Austin power Bill films. Did like go. I love go. Yeah. It's, it, <laughs> I think Austin powers is a different film to Hudson Hawk. I mean, um, and, and I would 100% say there's, there's probably, better filmmaking going on in Austin powers. And, and, and he Hudson also, Hawk. he lost his member in a smoking accident, <laughs> but th there's something about <laughs> these, these villains and how memorable they are that they almost feel, um, like the over the top rejects of an Austin powered film. And I, I think that's a benefit for this film. I want to, I want to talk about something here that a lot of you may not know. Okay. A lot of your listeners might not know, but 
throughout the film his throughout film history, this is me, the cinnamon coming out. Um, <laughs> there's been a lot of actors who have played Count Dracula. Uh-huh. Can you guess in this film who has played Count Dracula? Richard Ooh. Grant. Grant, right? Nope. Don Burton. No. Nope. Sandra Bernard. Yeah. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. I'd watch Funny. that movie. Uh, I'm just going to let you keep guessing for a minute. You guys got to nail it sooner or later. Uh, Danny Aiello. No, that would be that would be an interesting kind of Dracula, though. Hey, can you fucking believe it? Oh, oh, Frank Stallone. No, oh, that would be a really awesome one. Maybe singing and stuff. That would be amazing. Don Burden, Don Burden, the butler. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and ease y'all's pain. Okay. Such actors, know? such actors as we know as George Hamilton, Bela Lugosi, Christopher Lee, Richard Roxborough, Luke Evans, Morgan Freeman even has played Dracula. Okay. Uh, Klaus Kinski has done it. Paul Nashi has done it. Yeah. John Carradine. You name it, name it, name it. Jack Palance. Even Dominic Purcell, for Christ's sake. But no, <laughs> even, Judd, even Judd Hirsch has played Dracula at some point. But <laughs> nobody would have guessed that Andrew Bernarski has played Count Dracula before. Butterfinger? No. Now I need to see this. What? When? So there's a film out there that I've seen. It's called Dracula's Guest. And he plays Count Dracula in it. Does he have the Butterfinger haircut? No. Oh. But uh, if you look on IMDb, you can see what he looks like. It's Count Dracula. Ooh. Oh, man. Yeah. I got I two did. films to watch. I got to watch that um, Rollerblade oh. one that Frank Stallone did. And now... Uh, Zangief's uh, Dracula movie. <laughs> yeah. Wow, you know what? It look he could be a WWE wrestler with this look. Oh yeah, he's a part he's of the like, Brood. Remember the Brood, yeah. Sammy? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I do remember the Brood. Yes, I do. That's awesome. That's a fun film fact. Well, let's let's share some final thoughts because we got a little feedback to get to. Um, I'm going to start with you, Sammy. Any any final thoughts on this and? And uh, no, I think this is a really good like matinee B movie. Uh, it's got an A movie budget, but I think it's really more a B movie than anything. And uh, I think it's fun. I think it's goofy, it's silly. Maybe you got to be in a certain kind of mood to enjoy it. But I, I, I like vanity projects. I like when they go wrong. I like when they go right. I, I just enjoy them. And um, this one is is a lot of fun. And I I think that. Uh, I mean, it makes me smile every time I watch it. I hadn't seen it in probably about 15 years when I watched it the other day. Mm-hmm. I was kind of worried that you know, it is dated, but I think in a good way, it's kind of quaint and oddly really didn't remember that much cussing in it. It was very strange to remember. I mean, there's a ton of F-bomb. lots of motherfuckers. I, I was yeah. shocked when I, I totally was like, oh, yeah, this is a rated R film. And then oh, why was it rated R? And then you it doesn't take you long. Yeah, it doesn't take you long, right? I mean, it, they just start cussing, and it's like, wow. I mean, there's really no need to cuss this much, but that's just, you know, me being kind of, you know, like, wow, I can't believe they cussed. I mean, but again, everybody was cussing in movies back then. So, yep. yeah, man, I, I still enjoy it. I still I still love the Hudson Hawk. I still think it's actually one of Bruce Willis's most underrated films. Okay, so um, I'm going to assume you don't think it's a bomb. I do not think it's a bomb. Awesome. All right, Jose, where are you landing on this? Is Hudson Hawk a bomb? And any final thoughts? It is not a bomb. It is a comic masterpiece. I Amen. love this movie. <laughs> I've got the power. Veto, Brad. Veto. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Brad, would you, would you like to uh, cast your vote on this one and, and share any final thoughts? 
I, 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 it just doesn't work for me. Look, I'm glad you guys like this little movie and all that stuff, but uh, it doesn't, doesn't work. I, I think, I think I just have a problem with the tone. Um, and I don't know from minute one where we're like fucking around with Da Vinci. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I didn't know. I was like, I don't think this movie is a period piece, but maybe it is. And then I'm like, Oh no, we flash forward 500 years. And I don't know, man, it just was all, I was all discombobulated when I watched this, I guess. So, uh, it is a bomb. Oh boy. Did you at least laugh at the Mona Lisa joke? Yeah. You didn't. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Pretty good. I like that. The teeth. I like the teeth. Yeah. I I thought it was funny. Yeah. I, I, I gotta say, uh, William Conrad does the voiceover work in the beginning. It we sounds like he's having a stroke. Um, I am a little worried when he talks. Uh, he 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 may have, have had one already by then. Yes. Okay. He's a very heavy man. Yep. Uh, this is definitely one hundred percent not a bomb. And here's the thing: I've heard some people call this film like, "Oh, it's so bad, it's good." I don't. I don't think it's a case of that at all. I really think there's some quality filmmaking uh, going on here, and definitely in my opinion, some top-notch comedic performances from everybody. Even though it's over the top, I think it works in the context. And and you guys have said this already. Brad didn't, but this this movie works for me. It's unique. For me, it's never boring. And I don't I really just don't think there's a, another film like it. And I think it 100% needs to be re-examined by the masses. So I, I know you mentioned, you know, fat shaming and stuff like that. Yeah, but in the context, it's just two buddies giving each other, you know, a, a hard time. And it's it's a good example of even in these films where you kind of look at that and go, ooh, did it age well? Did it age poorly? I think it aged fine. It's it's an adult comedy. It's an adult action film. It's an adult musical. It's got everything from that perspective. And more than anything, it's just trying to entertain and be fun. And I, I think 100% it works. 100%. It's fantastic. All right, and it's not. I'm still waiting for my light up Jesus uh, crucifix phone. Oh, okay, yeah, we'll get that for you. (laughs) We'll send it over. Uh, Brad, we have some feedback. You want me? You want me read through these? Yes, please. Okay, first off, from Clayton, can you do not a bomb podcast reviews of Jupiter's Ascending, Dreamhouse from 2011, Mm -hmm. Hollywood Homicide? That was the Harrison Ford movie, right? Yeah, Josh Josh Hartnett. Oh, Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, Looney Tunes back in action in the future. That's that's from Clayton. All of Joe those, Dante. Yes. All right, we're adding them to the list. Some some one of these or two of these might come up this year. Actually, and these mm-hmm. are good suggestions. Uh, from Michael, subject: Alice Guinness making a point. Alec Guinness. Alec. Yeah. Oh. I say Alex. Alice. Who's Alice Guinness? Guinness? Alec Guinness. All right. Your discussion of Hollywood accounting and in particular points reminded me of what happened with Sir Alec Guinness in 1977 Star Wars. Guinness requested that his usual upfront fee be doubled, to which he received $150,000 in January 1976. But he also requested 2% of the final grosses, to which George Lucas added another quarter percent. Guinness immediately earned $7 million and more than $100 million by the time of his death in 2000. Guinness came to hate Star Wars, but I bet he didn't hate the money. Keep up the good work, Michael. I did not know that. That's pretty here's interesting. I, here's how I always feel about that. You know, He probably did come to hate Star Wars, didn't hate the money, but I hate my job, and I don't hate the money either. <laughs> <clears throat> That's true. 
Yeah, I, I heard all these stories about um, people going up to Alec Guinness and asking for his autograph, and he's like, well, why? And Star Wars, and he's like, well, I'll give you the autograph if you never watch that film again. <laughs> so, oh, my God. Yeah. Why? Me and my son often have a joke where we if we just randomly go Obi Wan, yeah, we just love we just love saying it that way. Obi Wan, uh, what is it? Who's more happens. foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him to the money? To the money, yeah, yep. or uh, the fool who represents himself. Right? Yeah, I don't know. Something. One like more email. Now I question the legitimacy of this one. This person Uh-oh. has emailed us like five hundred times. I huh? maybe. <laughs> But this comes from Chris Evans, which I, I think Brad hijacked Chris's email account yep, and sent this me. to us. How does, how, does, how does Chris feel about Hudson Hawk? Uh, yeah, Chris, <laughs> write in and tell us what you think about Hudson Hawk. Yes, please. Yeah, we'll know. We'll know for sure if you're Looking a tri- real person. Trigger words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I so, hated. I hated. I hated this. Yeah, if he says, <laughs> if he says the phrase "sucks ass," you know it's me. Yeah, <laughs> slurps butt. Slurps, yeah. slurps butt. <laughs> All right, Chris has a question. You guys are going to have to put your thinking caps on. It says, and happy 60th birthday to Quentin Tarantino. I guess today's his birthday, huh? Oh, well. He's sixty. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, that's wow. why. So Brad goes on. I'm sorry, Chris goes on <laughs> to say, simple question to celebrate. What are the bombers rankings of his nine films? Can't wait to hear 10. We'll, we'll do 10. We'll split up. Oh. Do you want to explain this, Brad, why people get nine and 10 confused? Well, because since this is your Kill email Bill volume one and volume two. Do you keep them as one film? They're one. This one film is just released, but yeah. So, <gasps> so you, you did write this one. Cause no, you, I, I count kill bill as one film. Yep. Which is why you wrote people, in nine films. Because the next one of his films is his kids. God damn it, Troy. Really, I mean, he's uh, he's directed 11 films if you count My Best Friend's Birthday. No, yeah, true. Yeah. That doesn't count. Okay. That, that doesn't fit his whole. That, that doesn't. That wasn't going towards thing. Brad's email. Okay. Okay. Um, Chris, who, who wants uh, to go Chris first? Chris Evans. Sorry, Chris yeah. Evans' email wanted to know the nine films. I I count them as 10. I think We're Brad. Do 10. Chris counts them as okay, nine. We're doing ten. Okay. So who, who's going first? Who's going first? I'll go first. All right, Jose. Uh, where, where do you want me to start? Ten or one? Go go from ten to one. Ten to one. Okay. Um, I think this might be a little controversial. Maybe. Okay. Ten. Django Unchained. Mm, oh wow. Nine. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Ooh, okay. Okay. Eight. Inglorious Bastards. Whoa. Oh whoa, wow. Whoa, wow. Whoa. Wow. Seven. <laughs> Seven, the hateful eight. <laughs> Jeez, okay. Six, reservoir dogs. Ooh. Five, death proof. Okay, right in the middle. Four, Kill Bill Volume One. Okay, okay. Three, Pulp Fiction. Okay. Two, Kill Bill Volume Two. Oh. Ah, okay. And number one, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. Controversial. That is. Uh, your top five, not so much. I don't think your bottom five. Wow. Yeah, I did. I did not some like serious, I was serious not, in there. I was not taken in by Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I would put Hateful Eight above Inglorious Bastards. Well, that's just wrong. That's so. crazy talk. <laughs> I mean, Jesus. I, I like. I like. I like the cut of your jib, sir. <laughs> wow. All right, Sammy, you want to go deep with my Hanzo steel? Well, 
Jose, it's been fun, but this will be <laughs> <laughs> Jose, you did not respond to Brad's email correctly. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, um, sorry, Chris so, Evans. You want me to go? Yeah, go, go ahead, Sammy. All right, so you guys help keep track because I don't have anything written down here, but I'm going to go off my gut here and what I know I like. Okay. All right, so number 10 for me, easily, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. Um, I, I think that's the weakest film he's ever made. Um, number nine. I'm gonna go with, I'm gonna go with Hateful Eight, which so that's back to back. Yep. Okay. Take it back. <laughs> Number eight. I'm gonna go with. This gets a little difficult now for me. Come on, you can do this. Eight. It's just eight. <laughs> Chip, you got seven know, more to go, I know, man. <laughs> I know. I know. It's tough though. I don't. I don't know what I want to get my order in here. Uh, number eight. I'm gonna go. Oof. Shit. What's your gut tell you? Kill Bill Volume One. I'm gonna go Kill Bill Volume One. Okay. At Seven. eight. Yeah. <laughs> Seven. I'm gonna go uh, Inglorious Bastards. Six. I'm gonna go Pulp Fiction. Five. What? Brad is Jeez. dead. <laughs> Five. I'm gonna go Inglorious Bastards. I think that's. I haven't said that one yet. No, you said Inglorious Bastards already. No, you said yeah. that already. That was but your. Yeah, you mean I think so. So five. I'll go. I'll go Reservoir on five. Okay. Four. I'll go. Um. Uh, Django Unchained. I really like that one. Three. I'm gonna go. Death Proof. Ooh. Wow. Wow. I, mean, I like. I, I, I like that I'm, high ranking. I'm one of the biggest fans of Death Proof you'll ever meet. Wow. Okay. Love Death Proof. Uh, Kill Bill Volume 2. I'm going to go number two. And Jackie uh, Brown. And Jackie Brown, number one. Yes. Dang. I did not expect those lists, man, from both of you. That's fantastic. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. You know, looking at his filmography, though, you think 10 films, you think, oh, this is easy. It's actually, it gets pretty difficult pretty quickly. It does. Uh, Yeah. For me, it's. It does, especially in the middle. All right, I'll, I'll share mine. We'll let we'll let Brad uh, answer his own email last. <laughs> <laughs> Number ten, clearly, easily, the hateful eight. Number nine, sorry, Sammy, death proof. Oh man. Ah. Oh. Uh, number eight, once upon a time in Hollywood. Number seven, Django Unchained. Number six, I'm going to say Reservoir Dogs. Uh, now we're in the top five here, right? So number five, I'm going to say Kill Bill Volume One. Okay. Number four would be Kill Bill Volume Two. Mm-hmm. Number three is Pulp Fiction. Number two is Inglorious Bastards, and my number one as well is Jackie Brown. I think that's his uh, best work. That's wow. three for three for Jackie so far, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> All right, Brad, how, how would you like to answer crit or your whatever email? Go ahead. Uh, I, I just want to caveat. Um, basically, it's his top nine, and then there's a huge cliff, and then there's the 10th film. <laughs> okay. Uh, number 10 is The Hateful Eight. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you go up a huge ladder. Um, I'm going to say number nine is Death Proof. Oh, wow. Number eight is Jackie Brown. Oh, gee, oh, no, oh. no. See, this is why you don't like Hudson Hawk. You don't like nice things. 
Uh, Chris Evans. Number. I, no, I, <laughs> I like this. I, this. This is like the inverse of what yeah. we're doing. So I, number I like, s- seven would be Kill Bill Volume Two. Six is Kill Bill Volume One. Five is Once Upon a Time. Four is Django. Three is Reservoir Dogs. Two is Inglorious Bastards. And number one is Pulp Fiction. Oh, okay. I knew I knew Pulp Fiction was number one just because I've been in the room where you quoted the whole movie to me. So Every, everybody's top fives though are pretty solid. They're kind of jarbled a little bit, but they, yeah, yeah. You know, with a filmmaker like this, it's it's easy to kind of see that. Um, I think you could argue that he has eight perfect films. <laughs> um, I mean, I look Jackie Brown seven. Would be I would give top, him seven. Jackie Brown would be in my top fifty films of all time, and it's his. I think it's his eighth best film. I, th- I think he has. I think he has five great films. I think he, but I do think that you know he 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 swings. I, I like the way he swings. I just I think sometimes he. I think he misses. It's like it's so interesting to me. Once upon a time in Hollywood just really misses for me, and I don't know why it shouldn't. It's got everything I love: seventies or late sixties, early seventies yeah. Hollywood. Uh, the the Manson murders, all that stuff. I love all that stuff. I love all the history. Basically, they're talking about how Needham and and, yeah, yeah. and a lot of Hollywood history and stuff. And yet, the whole movie is just for me. It's just one big like blowjob of a film. It just it's <laughs> and and not the good kind. So <laughs> oh, okay. I felt the same way about Django. Not not that it was a blowjob, but I think that <laughs> I think that the subject matter. And then mixing it with like exploitation rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, and then I and then I did not like Leonardo DiCaprio's acting in that film. I I I was it just it was so schmaltzy and over the top. It was can of I, course I, I like the Mayflowers in Hudson Hawk, but yeah. I did not like Leonardo in can I add, Go Figure. Can I add one uh challenge to Brad slash Chris's email? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> What is what is the best single moment in any Quentin Tarantino film? Oh my goodness! Oh, oh, uh, because he is a filmmaker of moments. Yeah, Mm. like Brian De Palma before him, like Martin Scorsese. He's that kind of filmmaker, and he has moments in every one of his films you never forget. I think the Pulp Fiction apartment has to be up there. I go back always to the scene where they blow off that guy's head by accident. <laughs> oh shit, man! Oh shit! I shot Marvin in the face. Marvin in the face. <laughs> but you got some brain on you. I uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I agree with you. I, like, I, I, have a, I, I have a clear. I have a very clear winner. So right, I'm, I'm just waiting to hear for me. Well, I also think the part in in, uh, in Django Unchained, like, I have laughed probably so hard at this moment that. It's the part where they're talking about cutting the holes in the bags <laughs> before they're doing the raid. The good bit. It's so funny. Um, yes. yes. I, I mean, I could talk about this for the next four hours, but Sammy, I'm, sure. I'm curious. So for me, the moment that Quentin Tarantino became a director for me that I absolutely loved was in Death Proof. And it's when he decided to let Kurt Russell look at the camera and wink at the audience. And that yeah. was the, I was like, you got me. Nice. You got me for life at this point because he knew. And I knew that Kurt Russell fucking rules and he <laughs> should be winking at the camera every time he fucking looks at it. That's a good one. <laughs> I, I, I mean, for me, the moment, the moment that I knew 
I was watching something totally special. I mean, it goes back to Reservoir Dogs. And when Michael Madsen is oh, yeah. dumping gasoline, dancing, it it was just this fusion of music and just terror that's going on. Mm-hmm. And just that juxtaposition of everything. I'm like, wh- who is this guy? What is going on? And there, there's always these moments of it, right? And I remember even in Glorious Bastards, just the opening sequence with the interrogation. Oh, that's and a great one. Yeah. All the little things that he's doing in terms of like holding her wrist and checking, you know, he's, he's asking questions like, why is he holding under the wrist the way that he's doing? He's checking his, her pulse based on her answers. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and it's all those little details that happen in his film. And, you know, I got to tell you, Jackie Brown, that, that last sequence between Forster and Pam Greer, um, when she's leaving him at the end, and that, I mean, that gets to me all the time. And to me, that's what I've always loved about Tarantino is he can do this moment like in Reservoir Dogs um, and build build up that tension, et cetera, and, and just, uh, you know, Pulp Fiction. He's got tons of those. But then you get to something like Jack, Jackie Brown, and it's this quiet moment, and he lets those two performers just really show their feelings in that moment. It's super heartbreaking. And you're, mm-hmm. and you're going, okay, this, this guy can, when he's in his zone, he's unmatched hundred percent. And I, I kind of agree with Brad. I, I don't know if I would give him like, Hey, there's eight or nine perfect films. I, I think there's like six, maybe seven, mm-hmm. but I, yeah, I would, I wouldn't say the hate, the hateful eight death proof or even me a, once still a, a hell of a batting average, right? Yeah, it is. But I, I, you know, it, it probably is Django Unchained, once upon a time in Hollywood, death proof and hateful eight i don't think are perfect yeah. um but the rest are in my that's opinion proof to me is like it's, it's like the vanity project of it the is bunch. yeah and that's why of course again our we talked about this with the hudson hawk episode i love the vanity projects and it just feels like the most vanity project but there's so many great moments in his movies i mean i could watch the the head-on car wreck collision and death proof a thousand times yeah the I crazy 88s fight in kill bill yeah like one i could yeah. watch max cherry put the cassette tape in and sing along to the song that reminds him of Jackie Brown. I could watch that until I die. And I could watch the scene with Jackie Brown and um, Samuel L. Jackson when uh, he walks into the apartment and it's dark, and then she's like, now now you listen to me, mom. (laughs) It's fantastic. No, I agree. So many great uh, moments. And even the David Carradine Superman speech. Oh, I love that one. Well, just Uh, that that whole last action piece that occurs in there. Is yeah. freaking fantastic, or or you know the fight with um, Daryl Hannah in the trailer uh, is freaking uh, amazing. Just, I mean, he's he's a filmmaker, and again, I know he's gotten some hate over the last few years, last decade or whatever from some people. But I said this on Facebook today. He's a filmmaker. He's he's like Scorsese before him, and and some of these other filmmakers. He's a vanguard for the love of film, and yeah. whether you like his films or not. It doesn't even matter to me because he's a guy that came along and championed all those great filmmakers that everybody forgot. Brian yeah. Trenchard Smith and Antonio Margaretti and and all of these great filmmakers. Margaretti. Yeah, that the world is <laughs> the world is shit on them. And here he comes and 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 reminds everybody that there's this rich history. And there every generation has to have one of those guys. Yeah. So no. Oh. It's a good email, Brad. Uh Chris. Uh, yeah, thanks. Sorry, Chris. Yes. Thank you, Brad. Thank Chris. you, Chris Evans and Clayton and the gentleman after. Yes, Michael. 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 Clayton. Michael. Yeah, all of it. So uh, Michael Clayton. <laughs> Michael Clayton. Yeah. Mm. 
Brad, <laughs> if you if you wanted to send in another email and contact us, how would you do that? That's not about pod at gmail.com. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also go to Not About Podcast and hit the Contact Us button and tell Troy to fuck off. <laughs> you should label the button that. Yeah, yeah that you should. It's the yeah. fuck off button. Fuck off button. Troy, comma, fuck off. Yeah. Um, Jose, what's going on uh, this week at Watch Skip? So uh, I stumbled upon um, another movie podcast called Wild Dream Podcast. Okay. Uh, these two brothers... Uh, they're on mountain time. I don't really know where, where, what state they're in, but their infinity pool episode made me laugh so hard. I almost crashed my car. So they, I invited them on to watch skip plus and we reviewed John nice. wick four. So that is coming out Thursday. Cannot wait. Oh my gosh. If you're, if you're on mountain time, do you set a grizzly alarm? <laughs> <laughs> Did you write the screenplay for Hudson Hawk? <laughs> You set a barrel up. Uh, Sammy, we've talked about you it. You Hudson Hawk's got dad jokes, baby. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're coming back to the to the Gentleman's Guide here in a few weeks. Um, yeah, yeah. Yay. Yeah. So they've been doing No Murder March over there at the yeah. GGTMC, uh, and uh, it's been great. Uh, they just did Diary of a Mad Housewife. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was, it's more of a challenge, as I said, I think, last time I was on the show, which was last week or something. <laughs> Two weeks ago, uh, yep. <laughs> right before I wrote that email and blame Brad for writing it. Um, the, well done, the, uh, sir. <laughs> another dad joke. That is okay, guys. Around. I'm just gonna. I'll, I'll see you guys later. The uh, the uh, yeah. They're still doing that, but I'm, I'm coming back. And when I come back, we'll be doing. We'll be back into the thick of probably some true smut and and junk and 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 fun stuff. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to doing the show with will again i'm looking forward to being with everybody every week it again i've said over the years it's some of the greatest therapy in the world and it makes me feel great we often laugh the three of us the four of us i guess i should say i should count myself i guess um <laughs> that we can't sleep after we do this and yep. it's going to happen again tonight damn it and i'm, I'm going to be tired tomorrow and i'm going to be cussing you guys but i'm going <laughs> to love it <laughs> Well, uh, what's funny, you're going to be tired tomorrow, but we're going to finally record uh, a very special episode. It's late in the month, but we are going to talk about it. Brad, what are we doing? Yeah, so we're going to finally record uh, Breaking Brad for March, and we're doing LaQuisha. Again, it is on Tubi if you don't want to have any sort of digital footprint that you've watched it. (laughs) Go to Tubi, make a free account, then immediately delete it. Uh oh, girl. Uh oh, boy. I don't know where that one's gonna go. Yeah. So we had to call an audible. We've we've got this crazy schedule this week, and we were gonna do this film with uh, another podcast, but we just we just our schedule is like nuts. So we're gonna have to push that off. My wife is leaving the country. Yes, she is. Like, yeah. Yep. She got tired of Quentin Tarantino talk and. I'm out. Um, like, why are you? Why are you emailing your own podcast? It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, so See, Brad, I can do it too. You dicks. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. Brad decided to because it was his pick. He's like, well, we'll switch something out. So, what? What are we doing? Yeah. So we're going to do Atlantis: The Lost Empire, which is um, an animated film. Um, I believe was it from is it 2001. Bluff? No, it's Walt Disney. It's Disney. Okay. Yeah. Michael J. Um, Fox, uh, I think, 
star or his voice yeah. stars in it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, 2001. Um, oh. Yeah. Someone emailed us a little while ago and gave us a, uh, a glowing review. So we decided, Hey, if you send us an email and butter us up, we'll move your film up the list. Yeah. Um, That's how it works. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Um, and, and if you're curious, Troy and I did a month of animated stuff back a while ago. Mm-hmm. Go back and listen to some of that. We did Titan AE, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. Iron Giant? Was Iron that? Giant. No, but yeah, but we also did. Uh, I can't remember. I was like. Treasure Planet. Treasure oh, Planet. yeah, that one. That one. Yeah. Uh, so go listen to those if you want to hear us talk about some animated films. So I'm excited for this one. I haven't seen it in forever. So I'm ready. Yeah, I think I've only ever seen it once. I might check that out again. Yeah, I, uh, I remember liking. <laughs> yeah, I remember liking some of the design. You got. Hey Vern, I'm with Jim Barney. Yeah, I like hey, some Vern. of the. Yeah, I, I like uh, the design of that film, but I don't remember liking the movie or not. I can't remember if I liked it or not. I I remember it being a, a favorite in our household, especially the entire family. So we're we're kind of oh, looking forward to go back and revisit it because um, I think everybody liked that one. So. It's a good pick. The girl look. The girl looks like she's from Pandora. <laughs> hey, maybe maybe Cameron stole from Atlantis. We're going to talk about that. Oh, yep. Yeah. Well, anything else, Brad? Should we? And uh, any other business? Or are we good? We're good. We're good. Okay. I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. If it's the evening, Buenos Aires. Uh, hey, come back next week. We're going to be. We're going to be talking some Disney cartoons, you know, when, when Disney wasn't on top of the world with their animation. So join us. Go check out Watch Get Plus. I can't wait for that John Wick 4 episode. Sammy's going to be back on the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. The, everything in the world's going to be right. So it's going to be awesome. So I'll be, in, I'll be in Baltimore, actually, in a week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Man, you see him in person. Yeah, man. All right, folks. Have a good evening, and we'll catch you next week. Don't lose your head. Bye.